Powered from the Pedroma Cigar Studios on the Black Stage in Indian Trail, North Carolina, and broadcasting from the Drew Estate Studios in California, it's episode 243 of the Primetime Show. Tonight, we welcome Tim Osgener of Osgener Family Cigars and Crown Heads as our special guest. And as always, the Primetime Show is sponsored by Saga Cigars. Dagos Race introduces another chapter of the saga, the Saga Celez. So that's a Spanish word that means leisure after work. In the spirit is a standing idea of owning your own journey and making your own saga. The saga sled is the perfect companion to enrich those moments of choice, making them truly yours. Saga sled carries a blend of Criollo Olor and Peloto Cubano wrapped in a selected Ecuador Che Claro wrapper that generously delivers with elegance, a surprisingly rich and balanced smoke. It's available in three sides at affordable price. Ask your retail for Saga Celez. And by Perdomo Cigars. Awarded Nicaraguan Cigar of the Year in 2014 by Cigar Journal, the Perdomo 20th anniversary brand is consistently earning the highest scores in the industry and is the top seller in humidors around the world. The Perdomo 20th anniversary blend requires tobacco that's been carefully hand-selected and are well-aged for a minimum of eight years. The Perdomo 20th anniversary is offered in three distinct wrappers, a smooth, creamy Ecuadorian Connecticut, a rich, earthy Cuban seed Nicaraguan sun-grown, and a dark, oily Cuban seed Nicaraguan Maduro. Combining these beautifully bourbon barrel-aged wrappers with thick high-priming binder and filler tobaccos gives each blend a balanced complexity with layers of rich flavors and smooth, elegant aromas. Perdomo Cigars is a family-owned and operated company headquartered in Miami, Florida, with manufacturing and agricultural facilities in Esteli, Nicaragua. Perdomo's highly acclaimed cigar brands include the Perdomo State Selection Vintage, the Perdomo Double-Aged 12-Year Vintage, the Perdomo 20th Anniversary, Perdomo Reserve 10th Anniversary, Perdomo Abano Bourbon Barrel-Aged, Perdomo Lot 23, Perdomo Mensa 70 and many more. For great tasting notes and pairing information, check out the Perdomo website at www.perdomocigars.com. And by Aganorsa Leaf, great leaf makes great cigars. Aganorsa Leaf stands out because of the distinctive flavor of their Corojo 99 and Criollo 98 seeds cultivated by Cuban agronomists in the best lands in Jalapa and Esteli, Nicaragua. When you smoke one of our JFR, JFR Lunatic, Guardian of the Farm, or Casa Fernandez cigars, you experience the unique taste and aroma that makes Aganorsa Leaf special. Smoke one today and enjoy the signature flavor of Aganorsa Leaf. And finally, by Drew Estate. Check out and download the Drew Diplomat app for your mobile device. Keep up with everything going on in Drew Estate. Experience the subculture that is the rebirth of cigars. For more information, check out www.drewdiplomat.com. And as always, all the live streaming for the Primetime Network shows is sponsored exclusively by Drew Estate, as well as the California Studios for the Primetime Show. Well, welcome, everybody. This is Primetime, episode 243. Today is Thursday, September 29th, 2022. Will Cooper, I am in the Perdomo Scott Studios here on the Black Stage, and I'm joined cross-country by my good friend and colleague, Mr. Aaron Loomis. How you doing tonight, Will? Not too bad. How are you? I'm doing uh, pretty good, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're winding, winding down the baseball season, so. Uh, it's over. <laughs> it, it, it ended in Chicago today. I mean, you didn't even guys didn't even put up any runs, right? It was just oh, it's brutal. And, and, and here's the here's the one thing I'll just say it was kind of the nail in the coffin. So I do have a day job, and on my day job, I I, I have a guy I'm working um this particular uh opportunity on, I'll say. And he's like, Yeah, I'm gonna be out today, right? And he and he's like, <laughs> he doesn't tell me to the left day, oh, I'm at the Cubs game with the Phillies. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, you're just torturing me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, why? I said he goes. We're gonna lose. I said no. You're not. <laughs> My God. So yeah, it, it's a rough uh, game. It's rough the way this is ending for me. That because it was we had like four and a half months of good baseball, and and yep. 
to see this happen um, it, it, at this point, in it's it's it, it's it's brutal, brutal. So does this this final month take all the steam out of your go Thompson go for next year? Yeah, I mean, if he doesn't yeah. make, I, I I'm I I don't want to say he shouldn't get the job, right? But I think they have to open the door for some other things. Um, I like him. Uh, I, I'm not gonna be upset if he comes back though. But I think I wouldn't just. I don't think they need to lock this guy up yet. Right. Uh, but let's see if he gets in the playoffs. That's that's what I want to see. Let's see if they can fight yeah. their way into the playoffs. So, um, but that could be you know big difference. I mean, you're I'm already hearing the Joe Madden. I'm already <laughs> hearing the Joe Madden stuff coming out. Right. So, which I don't know if that's the answer either. So, yeah. I mean, we need someone who can win games in September. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it doesn't. I, I was I was tempted to put the jersey back on today. I'm like, <laughs> why bother? Like, like <laughs> oh, yeah. so so, uh, but uh, no, um, but otherwise, um, we are uh, getting ready for some rain here, and uh, I think we're gonna have a lot of rain. Uh, but lucky, no, we won't have any catastrophic destruction here, which is good. good. We have we have some winds kicking up here, um, but nothing. Nothing. I don't think it will be anything. We always get the rain from these storms, but this one, I think we're really going to get soaked with. So uh, mm-hmm. when they say four to six inches, it's I've only been, I've been a couple of those storms down here and it's that's a lot. So, yeah. yeah. But hey, Aaron, why don't we uh, bring on our guest right now? Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a he's a newcomer to this show, um, yep. but not a newcomer to this industry. Um, and I'm, I'm just I'm thrilled tonight to uh, welcome Tim Osgana of Osgoda Family Cigars and Crown Heads to the Primetime Show. Tim, welcome to Primetime. Thank you very much, Will and Aaron, for having me on. Um, I've heard nothing but great things, uh, the highest compliments to, for you both and for the show. So um, thank you very much for having me on, and, and it's my honor to be with you guys this evening. Oh, we, we, we appreciate it as well. Thank you very much for the kind words. Sure. Yep, uh, but uh, it's great. Uh, you know, it's... it's um, and Tim, we're going to get into it, but this was CAO was the brand that got me started with, with cigars. I mean, it really kind of hooked me. Wow. So, uh, yeah, to kind of talk to you, uh, I never thought I'd have that opportunity, you know, given given um, you've been away for a while because I started right when you stepped away. Which so, which CAO was it that got you turned on? Oh, it was Italia. <laughs> There's a there is a good story behind Italia. I mean, of course, there's a story behind everything, right? Right. Yeah. But, uh, but that that's the cigar that actually um, uh, I used to propose to my wife. That was it was oh, wow. the catalyst. Um, we had a uh, Italian distributor in uh, Arezzo, Italy. His name was uh, Stefano Manelli. He was a hilarious guy, and uh, and you know when I would go and visit him, you know he'd always. Uh, um, you know, we would see people smoking Toscano. So I asked him about it and he gave me the brief history about it. And then it ended up that when we, whenever we were blending CAOs, we were always open-minded to trying uh, different tobaccos as long as they tasted unique and interesting. So mm-hmm. there was an Italian tobacco that came across us and, and we were using it as a secret ingredient, I think for like MX2 at the time. And then we tried it on its own on its own, it couldn't hold up. But when you blend it around it, that kind of unique, piquant kind of flavor came out. So that that was kind of the inspiration for, you know, because you want to do something that was unique and different. And yeah. uh, we always blended around the identity of the cigars around the tobaccos. You know, we wanted the tobaccos to be the stars of the show. Yeah, no, and it was, you know, it's kind of. It, it kind of because of that whole m- model of the World Series, like and you had these different tobaccos and they were kind of exotic. It, it kind of 
got me on my journey a lot with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I went I, for a long time. I mean, Brasilia goals. I just smoked those like yeah. like a forever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. I didn't I didn't complete Will the story. So then Stefano, oh, I'm sorry. Stefano said, I'm sorry, it's my fault. Stefano said, why don't you come? We introduced the cigar in Firenze, in Florence. So I had all these miles on Delta, you know, because I was going to Central America a lot. And so I used the miles to go with my my wife and we went to uh, uh, to Florence to introduce the Italia cigar to the Italian retailers. And I said, okay, while I'm there, I have enough miles. I can fly my wife over there too. And I can propose to her. Mm. And, uh, and I remember we went to like a very kind of casual family Italian trattoria. They had a wine cellar. No one had ever dined in the wine cellar, much less proposed. And uh, I had a buddy who was a travel agent in Nashville. And she said, oh, why don't I get a violin player for you? I'm like, that's not necessary. <laughs> and then she got it for like a good price. I said, okay, send the violin player and he came and he looked like he was off the boat from Naples. He had long hair. He had a beard and and he started playing violin. And then I said, uh, where are you from? And he said, I am a political refugee from Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> I go, I'm in the cigar business. Yeah. <laughs> and I live in Nashville. And he's like, Nashville, I want to come to Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> I can pluck it and, you know, I'm good. And I'm like, <laughs> then, he wouldn't, then he wouldn't leave. So after yeah. a long time, I'm like, Buddy, I love you, but you got to leave. I got to propose to this woman. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one. Yeah, yeah so that's yeah. the cigar. That, yeah, that's a, that's a good story. By I never forget the Italia because otherwise I wouldn't have been there proposing to my wife. <laughs> yeah, nice. That that's awesome. That is yeah, awesome. Yeah. Oh, and, and 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 I assume she, and she said yes, so that's good. <laughs> she did well. You know, it's it's kind of goes back to like you know. This is why I wanted to re-enter the cigar business, right? Is that like the cigar business, you know, it, it brings back a lot of nostalgia and memories and usually things that have to do with cigars. People are in a good mood, you know, people there's there's kind of a bit of a um, I never have been to a cigar event where people were arguing or in a bad mood. People were always pleasant and in a good mood and letting their hair down and relaxing. Yeah. And, and I miss that dynamic. Yeah. I'm sure that you're going to ask me this eventually, but. But it, organically, you know, I figured I would I would throw that in there. Well, I'll just kind of throw something back in there. Um, you were the first cigar event I ever attended. Mm. Uh, where, where was it? Uh, Craig Cass mm-hmm. in the box at the Sunset Club. Mm-hmm. He used to have yeah, that, yeah, that, that, but he had the event. Yeah. Yeah, that was the one that he had the event that was um, wasn't it in a, a restaurant that was also a brewery or a microbrew? Is that is that right? Or, or did they just have really good beer there? Or, or they eventually I, I had remember. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was very good. He did like a series of events when I was over there. Yep, yep. And I had just moved to Charlotte, so that was yeah. literally. And I in New York, I hadn't gone any. I was not going to cigar events in New York really. It's when I moved to Charlotte, and um, that happened to just be the very first event I went to. Yeah. And yeah. I'm trying. I I want to say it was LX2. I could be wrong. I think it was the LX2 yeah. launch. Yeah, it probably was because yeah. those custom boxes made where you could try like 100% of each of the Lajeros. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. Funny enough, we did a fun event in New York too at this place called Turkish Kitchen where we had belly dancers. <laughs> <laughs> That's the event yeah. you should have come to. Yeah, yeah. You know, I did know, I did know, I did know your rep up in New York. He passed away, unfortunately. Uh, he was a yeah. really good guy. Yeah, he I did know him. Guy. Yeah, was, I, I did know him. 
if we brought belly dancers to Craig Cass, he'd be like, golly, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. He's, so, he's, a, he's, uh, he's an awesome guy. He and uh, Lorraine and his whole family have yeah. we've become like good friends of theirs. And, and, you know, we enjoy them a lot. No, he's been very good to me as well uh, over the years. So uh, he's, he's opened a lot of doors for me. So I, I'm grateful to him yeah, yeah. as well. So, Tim, let's kind of like we always like to start this question off. And you've probably been asked this before, but we're going to ask it anyway. Your first experience with a cigar. Like, mm. And I, what was your first experience? Talk about it. And not necessarily uh, then what kind of it does, not necessarily when you got into the business, which we'll talk about. But just when you first started smoking a cigar. Well, you know, my father, um, when I was a young child and growing up, you know, he was in the Meerschaum pipe business. And, uh, and he got into that part-time while he was working as a mechanical engineer at DuPont. But he always, and, and it was from the basement of our home, literally. And so we would ship the cigars from the garage of our home. And my sister and I, to earn allowance, would price pipes on Mondays while we were watching Monday Night Football. And then, <laughs> and then to earn more allowance on the weekends, we would help him with like packing and shipping or anything else that, that he kind of threw at us. And so I remember, though, that he had a humidor and in the humidor, you know, again, this was, I mean, probably around like the, let's say in the 70s, mid 70s, that he, he liked Hoyo de Monterey, you know, not the Cuban, not the Cuban, Cuban Hoyo de Monterey. Right, right. Um, but that's what he liked. And he might have liked punch also at the time. So but I remember like occasionally he would smoke pipes and he would smoke some cigars. But those are the cigars that he smoked Well, one time. Uh, he and my mother went out of town and, um, at that time I was in high school. So then now this is, you're talking about like the mid eighties and, um, and he also loved the, he, we, we all loved kind of classical music growing up. He loved it and listened to it. And therefore I did too. And I thought the composers were interesting their lives. And, uh, so the movie Amadeus was around that time. Mm, and, uh, yep. we kind of fell in love with that movie cause it was so well acted and all of this. And so, and I also remember like in his downstairs, he had this kind of, he had all these pipes everywhere. And, and I would occasionally have these parties in high school and, and all my friends are like, what is this? Is your dad a drug dealer? I'm like, no, <laughs> drug dealer. He's in the pipe business. they're like, yeah, he's smoking weed out of this. And yeah. you're like, oh, he's not smoking weed. But he had this like liquor cabinet that was small. And I remember he had Jack Daniels there. So they're out of town. It's actually snowing uh, at this time in Nashville. So it might've been around like say January. And I was downstairs and I could like watch the TV without having to price pipes and, you know, Monday night football. It wasn't a Monday night. And, uh, and, and so I popped in Amadeus in the VCR. And uh, I remember I had a, I had this robe because I remember like hearing about people with a smoking robe yep. or whatever. So I put on a robe, I put on some slippers, <laughs> turned on the TV and Amadeus. And I said, I'm going to smoke one of these Hoya de Monterey cigars and I'm going to get, a glass he had one of these glasses that had like a picket fence painted on it with flowers or something and I, that was the, that was his rocks glass so i was like i'm gonna get a rocks glass put some rocks and drink jack you know with with a cigar no yep. so uh so i did that and i started watching amadeus and i was smoking a cigar and then i felt really bad <laughs> wave of just queasiness hit me yeah. and i was like Oh my God, I'm about to throw up. And I had to <laughs> run outside and I threw up in the snow. <laughs> I felt terrible. So that was my first experience smoking a cigar. I've had, yeah, I had others in the subsequent 
future that were like funny and memorable. I remember my first cigar dinner, I was living in, I went to school at, at USC in LA. And then after I graduated, I had to go do a cigar dinner in Pasadena at the time. And, you know, I remember like that experience too, but my first one, I, I won't forget it because yeah, how can you forget that you're, you're by yourself, you know, watching a movie and smoking a cigar and then you get yourself sick. <laughs> so that was my first cigar experience. Interesting. So you and I are almost the same age, I bet, because Amadeus came out when I was in high school. Yeah. Yeah. I was a uh, like junior, senior year was around. I, I yeah. Still, still one of my all time favorite movies. A great movie. Yes. A great movie. I actually saw the Broadway play of it. Uh, so did I, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really good, by the way. Yeah. Very, very good. Very different from the movie, mm -hmm. but equally as good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would. And I saw that play i was a lot younger when i saw that play and i appreciated it i think i was like 12 or 13 when i saw it right but i actually appreciated it yeah well i was lucky in that my parents um they they loved uh arts and culture and uh things that were beautiful you know thus that's why my father loved uh Mearsham pipes because of the artistry behind it mm -hmm. i was lucky in that my parents would always take me to you know artistic and cultural events and try to expose me to as much arts and culture as as possible and you know and and that's part of the story is that like after we uh sold cao we converted our warehouse into a non-profit contemporary arts center called oz arts nashville mm -hmm. that i'm pleased to tell you is doing very very well we just had a fundraiser last night that was um one of our uh two big fundraisers and it was inspired by big smoke events we used to do where we had all these stations that were like bourbon stations you know vodka whiskey wine beer and of course, cigars, cigars, we had them outside and we also had, you know, CBD and Delta eight too. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it was, it was a blast. It was actually our most successful fundraiser in, in the history of uh, Oz arts last night. Nice. That's, that's great. Yeah. 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 And in fact, we auctioned off a really cool auction. It was a, um, it was a rare Willet pairing mm -hmm. with Oz family cigars at a uh, really good friend of mine's house. Who's, probably the top restaurateur he and his brother in in nashville one of their restaurants called locust just won uh, restaurant of the year from uh, food and wine magazine like last week so oh, nice. yeah yeah he's a big cigar aficionado too so nashville is oh. a good cigar town yeah no that's uh i actually was in nashville back in um april actually mm. yep so i was over at the uh the gaylord um resort we had a we had a conference i had to go to a conference there well, next time you're in Nashville, you definitely need to give me a call. And Absolutely. Well, yeah, yeah. well, at the time I didn't know like you were really making a business, but yeah, now I, now I do. <laughs> I'll definitely do that for sure. <laughs> I, I I was born and raised here, so I know a bunch of people, a bunch of places to go. I can I can show you a good time. Oh, I, oh that's awesome too. That's awesome. I appreciate it. Um, you mentioned uh, so you mentioned your dad was selling pipes out of the basement. Mm -hmm. Was that just kind of a thing he did as a side thing? What kind of got him into that? Well, you know, my father was an uh, Armenian born in Istanbul, Turkey, and his father was a jeweler. Mm -hmm. And so his father, you know, also was a very meticulous, detail-oriented man like my father was. And uh, so my father at a very young age kind of fell in love with uh, artistry, you know, the artist, artisan nature of, uh, of the jewelry and how jewelry is made. And, you know, when you're in Istanbul, and you go to all these markets, Mearsham is a mineral that's basically, you know, these small crustacea that have fossilized into a mineral. 
And uh, the top place in the world that they come from is a city called Eskisheir, which means old city in English. Mm -hmm. That is on the way to Ankara. In fact, they had some very historic battles there, um, you know, between, uh, you know, uh, the Turks and the Greeks. And uh, it's in this city in the square mile radius, a small square mile radius where they have these mines underground, where they mine these Mirsham pipes. Then they're carved in Eskisheir and a lot of them are sold like in places like Istanbul. So my father just loved these pipes and he loved smoking them because when you smoke them, that porosity, that you, it's, it's very porous. Yeah. So when you put the stone into water, it absorbs the water, it starts floating at first, then it goes to the bottom of, you know, let's say the bucket that you put it in with water. And then you can carve into it like you're carving into a bar of soap. And then you dry it in a kiln oven and you coat it with beeswax to, you know, you know tr so that when it, so it can color. And then when you smoke it, it feels it's a natural filter. So it feels cool in your mouth. It absorbs the tar and the nicotine. You taste the pure flavor of the tobacco and it starts it starts coloring on you. My father thought that the stems that you would put into the shank of the pipe, traditionally, you would just shove them in and pull them out. And my father was like, well, this is terrible engineering idea. Because <laughs> what happens? You are shoving, shoving pool. It will crack, of course. Yeah. So you need to make thread. He was analyzing microfibers for DuPont. So he's like, I will do a fitting while you twist it in, twist it out, yeah. utilizing microfibers. And so he started doing that. Actually, he visited a tobacconist in North Carolina. And his name was uh, Chauncey. Uh, it might have been Chauncey Dean. That's right. And he had multiple stores. And he was a very influential retailer at that time. And this was in the late 60s, mm -hmm. you know, say around 68, let's say. And my father was like, you know, I need to pipe tobacco and pipe. He was in the Carolinas. He might have been there for some sort of like conference or convention. And he took a part, he twisted the pipe. And then the retailer was like, where'd you get that, that pipe? I've never seen a, a fitting like that. And my father's like, well, I made it. And he said, well, can I order some from you? And then when my father would always tell me a story, he's like, son, listen, when you are Armenian, never say no to an order. It's like, how much do you want? I give yeah. you little, 12 plus one. You know, so like, so then all of a sudden, this retailer told more retailers, they started calling our house in Nashville saying, hey, can we order these pipes? My dad contacted his brother-in-law, you know, my uncle who was in Istanbul. And he said, hey, can you go to Eskisher, find the best carvers, this is what people are buying in the U.S. Send them to me, and and this is how we're going to do the stem. But then, like the retailers were like, "Look, uh, I, can you please put your initials on the stem so that I know it's the same quality as what I heard about from this buddy of mine in North Carolina?" My dad's like, "Okay, well, what am I to do?" So he went to a hardware store and he bought one of these red electric drill bits that you would turn on, and he would carve his initials into the shank of the Mearsham pipe. And his initials were C-A-O. Right. Dono spelled C-A-N-O, which in Nashville, everybody would say, Kano, when we going to play some tennis? You know, like, <laughs> there's pronounce his name. Middle name, Aret, and last name, Osgener. So that, that became C-A-O. And then we became well-known for having the highest quality Mearsham pipes. And, and that's kind of how, that's kind of how it all started. Very, very organically, you know, very kind of, very truthful origin wow wow that's that's great that's a great story yeah um 
when did the cigar piece come? How did the cigar, how did it transition to cigars? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, cigars started becoming really popular in the early nineties, you know, thanks to, uh, you know, cigar aficionados come up and for sure. And also all these celebrities smoking cigars. Um, my father was in London and he was walking around Portobello road, you know, where they have all the antique stores and he found some really beautiful, uh, boxes that were antique gentlemen's boxes, like letter boxes or some that were jewelry boxes, but he was interested in the more masculine looking boxes. And so he bought like maybe, I don't know, 12 of them. And he converted them uh, with woodworkers here in Nashville with Spanish cedar. And, uh, and, you know, he wanted to make it so that it was hermetically sealed so that the fittings were important. And that's where his engineering came in. And then he showed them at the trade show. They were pretty expensive humidors, but he sold out of them. And then he started doing more, but they were always expensive, right? So it became from like 12 to like 24 to 34 to like 44. And, and you know, you would sell most of them at these trade shows. And so then he said, well, why don't I get these woodworkers that are doing the interior of the cedar to make solid wood humidors out of like, you know, cherry, oak, walnut, mahogany yeah. here in Tennessee. And we'll put the U.S. flag on it and say made in the USA. And so then we became actually a more of a humidor company in the early 90s, as opposed to a, uh, a, a pipe company. And then, you know, you're, you're showing these wares at the same trade show where you have cigar makers. So then that naturally transitioned as, well, should I do cigars or not? And he would ask all of his buddies in the business, if he should do it. And of course they all said no, yeah. except for one, which was Peter Stokeby. And, you know, Peter Stokeby was a famous pipe tobacco guy and he and my dad were buddies. You know, I remember Peter used to come over to our house and have dinner with us. And he was, he was a really kind of nice, charming, gregarious, funny guy. And, um, and he was like, ah, Jano, you know, fuck what everybody says. You do it. You, you do what you want. We'll get in there. They don't want competition. <laughs> so, my dad's like, you know, I think he is correct. So like, <laughs> then, then he, uh, he became buddies with Carlos Taranio and Carlos Taranio introduced him to Nestor Placencia. And then Nestor made our first CAO uh, cigars back in 1994. And our first CAO cigars were CAO Black. But again, this was during the cigar boom. So you know, everybody was rushing product. And, you know, our product was initially inconsistent because of this, you know, this huge demand that that no one was expecting. That CAO black was that the shade that was a shades was that the shade I I thought there were two CAO blacks. I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong. Was there a shade one and a dark one? Well, initially when we first came out, there was a CAO black. We call it a CAO black label because it had a diamond. It had the black. Yeah, yep. And it had black around the sides, and then yep. we did a, we did a CAO Maduro too. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's what I'm thinking. But again, yeah. But again, when they first came out, it was like one, I mean, the box was, let's say that the, the, the wrapper was supposed to be chestnut Brown. Well, we get one box. that was chestnut Brown. One box was yellow. One box was green, the wrapper. Yeah. You know, so when I was at the time I was in California and, and I was started visiting retailers and they would have our cigars on the shelf and they'd be like, Timmy, I love you. But I mean, look at these cigars. I mean, like <laughs> what, what the hell is there's no quality control. You know, so we had to kind of we had to kind of wade through that period. But it was you know what? It was a great learning experience. All of that 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 kind of helped us. That helped us cut our teeth and, and learn what not to do, which which is a lot of times, you know, like the cliche. I mean, you learn so much from like your failures. Yep. Yep. No, that's true. 
so you're at that first score. When did you get it? When did you transition into the business? And was it something that you had planned on getting into this business? Hmm. Not really. I mean, I was at the time, you know, I went to, um, I went to USC because, you know, um, my first, my freshman year, I went to university of Denver and, uh, which was, I had a lot of fun there, but I mean, there wasn't something that I was passionate about. And then I realized that I really enjoyed, um, doing like acting and stuff like that when I was a uh, uh, junior, senior year at in high school and people were saying, Hey, you're, you're good. You should like, you know, try to get into a competitive school in it. And so my father at first was like, what? That is not a profession. Engineering, that's a profession. <laughs> like acting, what the hell is fast fusa stuff? So he was like, uh, I said to him, okay, look, if I get into a school that's top 10 and very competitive to get in, hard to get in, then will you support my education? He said, okay, well then you must be good if that is the case, so do it. So I went to Chicago to audition for these schools. It was a blizzard when I auditioned. It was, it was quite memorable, but I remember getting into like, uh, I mean, it was either Boston University or USC, um, but I chose to go to USC because, you know, it's in Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of when I was in USC. And then when I, when, you know, at, at that time, LA, you didn't have um, all these high taxes on cigars. And also due to the fact that you had all these celebrities that were interested in cigars. I mean, LA was arguably one of the epicenters of cigars at that time, you know, which was, you know, I graduated from SC in 93, right? So that's right in the cigar boom. Mm -hmm. So I made friends with, at, ironically, just at that time with people like, you know, like uh, Tony Borhani and Rocky Patel and Pete Johnson were all out there at that time. And I, I'd run into him and became friends with him during that period out there. And, and, you know, that was uh, something that I did as a, uh, you know, and then some people said, you need to do, you're funny. So you should do like some stand up and improv comedy. So I did that. And I would, I would do that those at night. And during the day I would go and visit stores selling mm -hmm. pipes, humidors and cigars. So, so I kind of got involved in it then. And then I would just literally as an actor, you're taught the best actors are the ones that listen and respond. And so I was like, I'm just going to, I'm going to use that same, uh, that same philosophy when I'm visiting these stores. So I would just listen very closely to what the retailers were telling me. And then I would try to deliver because you know, I really wanted to be successful in their stores and our brand to be successful. So I would visit a store for the cigar warehouse in Sherman Oaks was a big retailer at the time a guy named Larry Wagner was, was running it. And he was always very nice to me. And he's like, look, if you come out with a cigar that looks like this and tastes like this, but it's like a dollar cheaper, I'll buy it from you all day. And then I would go to like Central America and a year later, I'd be like, Larry, you mean like this? And he's like, oh shit, now I got to buy this stuff. From this <laughs> That's how I learned, you know, I would like, I would listen and respond. I would try what they said is selling. And I just kind of, that's, I learned by uh, uh, pounding the pavement. Right. Yeah. So when, when did, so, you know, you came out with the black cigars out. When did like, when did things really start to cut to the point, Tim, where you're, you and your family said, you know what, the, the cigars are now the primary piece of our business, you know, over the pipes and the humidors. Well, I mean, even though, we came out of the gate kind of stumbling uh, still people were buying cigars. 
they wanted cigars, they needed cigars. So immediately, like we kind of shifted gears into cigars and the humidors were still very well liked. Um, but really kind of what happened with us was, um, there was a, there was a guy I became friends with out there. His name was David Ravandi, great guy. And he was doing, uh, um, some, some beautiful brochures for a cigar lounge out there in Beverly Hills called Nazareth, who was also Armenian. And uh, I said, Naz, this is a beautiful brochure. Who did it? And he's like, oh, it's my friend, David Ravandi. I will connect you to him. So he did. And then David did our first CAO ads, which were these like almost like, you know, fully naked women, like with a, with a CAO cigar that was like in color. And yeah. everybody in our office hated them, except for like my father and I, because we were like, well, it will get them to stop turning the page. And so mm -hmm. it did. And, uh, and, then, and then David said, uh, he goes, hey, he goes, hey, Tim, can you get me some more business in the cigar business? So I brought him with me to the trade show in Cincinnati. Um, I'm trying to remember what year that was. That was a big trade show. It might have been like 94, 95. And anyway, I was friends with Tony Burhani and he had this, the Hia cigars at the time were hot. So I introduced him to Tony and he did some ads for Tony. And then David went to Costa Rica with Tony. And he made friends with a guy that was making his cigars, a guy named Douglas Perringer, who looked like, you know, he looked like he was from ZZ Top. He had a long beard. And uh, he was a former cheese blender, which is interesting in and of itself, yeah. who was living in, in, you know, in Costa Rica and making cigars in a duty-free zone in, in San Jose. And, and, and Douglas said to David, he goes, you know, I have these really, really good Maduros that are aging. And I would, I would love to have another client besides this one client. And David's like, you should meet my friend, Tim. He's the incredible guy. And so I said, uh, and obviously I knew their cigars were very good. And I said, uh, David, tell Douglas Perringer to go to, to visit our offices in Nashville with some cigar samples. So actually he did. He flew from Costa Rica to Nashville with a, uh, one of these carry-on luggages, you know, um, full of these Maduro cigars. And our team loved him. You know, John Huber was there at the time. So he remembers this. And, uh, and we only had like not that much time for the trade show. So we're like, okay, let's just make it very simple. Let's make the bands look like part of a series D let's make the boxes simple, whatever is easiest for you to make. And that became CAO, uh, Lanover, Sarah Maduro. Yeah. And that was in 1998 and out of the gate, it got, you know, very high ratings for us in cigar insider and cigar aficionado. And then that's what really kind of put us on the map. Um, that, that made us a, a really hot, hot uh, company, cigar company. So that was, that was the tipping point for sure. At, at the time, what was the state of like the Maduros back then? In let, let, let me rephrase that. Were there a lot of Maduro cigars out at that point? And was this something kind of new or revolutionary? No, not really. I mean, like Maduro, I mean, you know, when you count with a cigar back then, the logical progression is you do a natural uh -huh. and then you do a Maduro. Okay. In the same line. So, you know, Maduro's were definitely out there. It was definitely, people were used to it. Okay. Um, definitely, definitely they were well-liked. And so, you know, it, but it, it was kind of unusual to have your first cigar not be a natural wrapper, but be a Maduro. Right. So that, that was a bit unusual, but Maduro's were definitely hot and definitely well-liked and, and people loved, and it was a Connecticut broadleaf Maduro, which, you know, that's a, traditionally a very delicious rapper, you know, so, uh, but it wasn't anything that we did that was necessarily revolutionary. I think it just hit, um, 
the right spot for people's palate at the time because it was a it was a rich cigar. And then we made the price point a accessible, affordable price point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like a, at that time, it was like maybe a six to eight dollar cigar, which now obviously with inflation and stuff, prices and S chips prices have gone up with cigars. But back then that was considered to be like, you know, a good accessible kind of, you know what I mean? Medium, medium price range. Cigar. Right. Yeah. Yep. You, um, a lot of the, uh, the branding that you guys did, I mean, a lot of people consider very, very innovative. What was some of the inspiration behind some of the branding that you did? Um, because like I said, it was, it was very untraditional, but at the same time, I, I would say it, we, you know, it still had a, a, um, it still respected the industry, you know, too. Yeah. I mean, really the tipping point for that would be Brasilia for sure. I mean, there was a, um, you know, we started working with um, the Taranio family, Charlie and Carlos, and then they had some colleagues, um, Fidel Olivas and his family in uh, Nicaragua and Honduras. Um, they had some Arapiraca wrapper from Brazil that uh, they, we worked on some blends and we liked one very much in particular. So the star of the show really was on that one was this Brazilian Arapiraca wrapper, um, which you know, interestingly, traditionally, they would they would make them almost into these like ropes and put the ropes mm-hmm. in like barrels and then shave them in Brazil. And uh, it was one of these wrappers that looked almost like a shriveled raisin quality. But when you spread it, it spread much bigger than it looked. And it, so it was pretty thin, too. So the burn quality of it was very, very good. And um, so that became Brasilia. And at the time, I remember looking at our diamond logo and I said, well, that's ironic if you turn it horizontally it looks like the brazilian flag yeah yeah why don't we do do some packaging around that you know since we kind of had a bit of an art deco ish type of look at the time and uh and we had a designer and friend an artist that we were working with in nashville and uh and and we got together with him we're like why don't we just like can can we make the whole box look like a brazilian flag and I remember at the time we had a national sales manager who was more of a traditionalist. And he's like, that is not going to sell. You guys are out of your minds. <laughs> I mean, a green box. I've, there's no green boxes on the market. Right. One, no one markets their cigar as Brazilian. Also, they're also nuts. And I remember I was in, actually I was in, I remember exactly where I was. I was in Houston in an airport and our salesman was going to pick us up because I was going to do some events with it. And, my father called me and he's like, you know, the sales manager is really thinking this is not going to sell. And I said, dad, dad, trust me, like in a sea of beige, which is what the humidors were. There were seas yeah. of like beige boxes. I go, this is going to stand out like a sore thumb. And then people are going to go saying, really, is this, is this good? And at that, by that time, because of the, our reputation with the pipes and the humidors, and the fact that, like, if somebody wanted to return a box of cigars, we would take it back and send them another one. You know what I mean? Like, we took care of our customers. That was a, a big thing for us is that that really the customers are our king. Um, that they said, no, it's a reputable company and, uh, and you should try it. So it actually worked for us. So I would say that that was another kind of milestone in our company was, was Brasilia. And then from then, we decided to, like, okay, let's really sort of lean into what is authentic 
and what is kind of unique uh, about this blend. Like there's support, there's supporting cast, but who's the star of the show here? And once we identified that, we would literally blend around it. And we would also try to convey the story of the cigar of the why via the packaging. So like thus MX2 is Maduro times two because there was a dark Maduro wrapper and a dark Maduro binder. Things like this, you know, Italia, same thing, you know, Italian tobacco, let's make that the star of the show and make a blend around that. And, um, and that seemed to resonate and work, work for us. Yeah, I mean, I could tell you that when when that series came out, the World Series, like these World Series, it kind of got me interested. Like I said, Italia and Brasilia were, were two of the first ones, but it really got me into like exploring different tobaccos. And I'll never forget, Tim, uh, I, I had met Jeff Borshowitz, right? And I was in his store and I don't know, we had this conversation. Yeah. He goes, oh, let me show you something. And he shows me the Costa Rica, which was like his the CAS. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, wow, like, <laughs> give me some of these. And like, <laughs> I took them back and people, like, where did you get these? I'm like, I, I found them down in Florida. I'm like, yeah. yeah Jeff Borshowitz is another guy that we go way back with. We, yeah. we decided to have these um, cigar promotions on for displays and whoever had the best display in their store would win a flight to Europe on the Concorde. And then we would come back on the QE2. And ironically, there was a both retired now. But Jeff won it because Jeff had the best display. And then we did another one the following year, and David Garafalo from Two Guys won it. <laughs> yeah. but that, well, we, liked, we, liked, we liked doing things that, like, you know, are outside the box and kind yeah. of yeah. pick up things and not be kind yeah. of stale or boring, yeah. and, you know? Yeah. So. I mean, and, and look, I got someone said it in the chat, and I still have one of these cigars, which probably I can't smoke anymore, but I have the Britalia when you actually did the, took the two and fused them together. Merge, yeah. Merge them with the barber pole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a lot of those, those sets were really cool that you guys would come out with uh, from time to time too with those. Yeah. What we noticed is that like at the show, we could be really wacky and creative and offer like one of these sort of unique items that are almost like collectibles. You know, so we would put together like these packages where if you buy Brasilia and Italia X number of SKUs, then you get you get this special box, right? Free or you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and people people seem to like those, right. and you know, there are a lot of people that are that are into collecting. Yeah, no, that, that that's great. I love that. So so we do a seg. Aaron, I'm gonna move this segment up, right? Sure. We don't do this a little late. So Tim, every week on this show, we actually pay tribute to the Sopranos. And we have a Soprano segment, right? We're going to the Soprano segment up tonight, right? Because okay. I want to get the story of how CAO came together with the Sopranos. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, great cigar. Uh, I, I didn't think I would like it when it first came out. I'm like, and I'm love, I love the cigar when it came out. Well, I mean, again, another great story. Um, that one was when, when I was living in L.A., you know, uh, this is when, like, again, Seinfeld was a big show and, you know, friends and all that stuff. And I was always being approached by these product placement companies to try to place our products on shows, not Seinfeld or friends, right? The shows that were around it. And I remember like it was expensive and is it worth it? Yeah. Would it move the needle? Um, and I remember at the time, like, you know, I mean, John Huber is like a brother to me. Right. So at the time, John was like really kind of communicating with consumers via like chat, chat boards, message boards of like certain websites or email and that kind of, this is pre social media. 
And he noticed that a lot of people were interested in talking about what were they smoking on The Sopranos last night. So somehow The Sopranos, well, it's not somehow. I mean, it was like our audience, right? But the cigar smoking audience seemed to resonate in a, in a big way with that show. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, literally out of nowhere on one episode, we were like, they're smoking our Land of Brasier Maduro in this episode. Mm-hmm. Like, I forget what ep- it might have been. In now season- I'm going to have to find the episode. Yeah, it was in season two or three. I want to tell okay. you. I might ask Johnny. Maybe he remembers. Yeah. But, but we were like, holy, holy shit. How did this happen? They're smoking like a CAO Land of Brasier Maduro. So we reached out to HBO. And then we got put in touch with their um, kind of promotions, promotional department. Mm-hmm. And then we got into this dialogue on, you know, hmm, we might, we may entertain and be interested in getting a cigar, a Soprano cigar made. Now, at that time, you know, HBO was headquartered in New York. I would imagine that they still have headquarters in New York and LA. But uh, we invited the New York team to go to a big smoke that was happening at the Marriott Marquis that Cigar Aficionado was putting on. And at that time, also, we, we always felt the philosophy of that, like, you know, if you have a uh, if you have a really great steak and you say, I have the best steak, but you present the steak and then the, the, the sauce is runny and it's like it doesn't look like it's the best steak. So we felt that presentation is very important. So if you say I have a great cigar, you want to present it. We felt that way across the board. So we invested in having a beautiful big smoke booth. Gorgeous, in fact. And also we wanted to serve people cigars. So we would cut and light every single person's cigars to get their opinion because it's an opportunity for us to have face-to-face with real cigar smokers. And so when HBO came, you know, we had this gorgeous booth. We had a massive crowd around our booth and they saw it and they, you could see the light in their eyes and they started smiling. They're like, we want to work with these guys. Yeah. So that's how that kind of started. And, uh, and we went down the path of, okay, how can we make a cigar that um, is not too cheesy and uh, um, is, is one that's a serious cigar and not one that is hitching the wagons? We didn't want to have a cigar that had that looked like a Sopranos poster. Yeah. But it to be more nuanced. Right. Our thought behind that was that, you know, if we like the wine Farniente. So if Farniente did it, what would they do? Would they put the Sopranos cast on a wine? Probably not. They probably have Farniente and then Sopranos edition. So, you know, we kind of approached it from that angle. Let's let's make a let's let's make the cigar really, really good. And let's make it more of a subtle nod and nuance to mafia uh, pop culture. So therefore, you know, the box was kind of like this, it looked kind of like the purposefully like mm-hmm. the of a Lincoln Continental, and the inside of the cigar had like fake leather, faux leather. So it yep. looked like the inside of a coffin. And, um, and then, you know, but the cigar was really good. The cigar had a Mazzafina wrapper on it from Brazil, which, you know, right now is a very hard to get an expensive wrapper. And that, that really had a lot, that really played a big part in the flavor of the cigar. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, and it, and it took off. I mean, this cigar really yeah. took off and I don't know, was there anything done like that before Tim, where like you, where someone partnered with like a television show on a cigar? Like, I mean, not, not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I know it, stuff in the '50s where they sponsored stuff, but I don't ever remember a branded show like that. Well, I remember the cigar when it came out. I thought the cigar was an amazing cigar. 
and the packaging was fantastic too. And uh, I remember going to Cigar Aficionado and sitting down with, uh, um, you know, with Marvin Schenken and he would have this big event that he would do every year. That was a black tie event. It was a fundraising event right. for a very good cause for prostate cancer called Night to Remember. And he would pass out all these cigars. And I said, uh, I said, you know, Marvin, I would love to have this cigar. Look at the, in the middle of everybody's table. And he said, he said, all right, I'll make a deal with you. If you can get uh, James Gandolfini to come tonight to remember, I will put a box of these cigars in the middle of every single table at this. And, you know, you had, you would have big hitters that would come to this. You right. Know, right. Very famous celebrities would come to it. And I said, all right, you have a deal. And I had a year to figure it out. At the time I was living in Nashville and these like, really old condos that were like, you know, six units, whatever. And the, the, the woman that was living in the ground floor was doing PR for Jack Daniels, you know, very big brand. And yeah. so we're getting closer tonight to remember, I still haven't figured out. I've been, I was asking HBO and HBO is like, listen, you know, our department is, we don't mess with creative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was their, that was their stance. Yeah. We, yeah you know, it's not ethical for us to kind of do this. Cause then we'd have to do it for everybody and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Oh, come on, help me help a brother out. <laughs> So I was talking to this PR person from Jack and she said, well, you know what you do to get him there. I said, no, what? She goes, offer him a limo all day. He can go anywhere he wants in the limo. As long as at six o'clock or whatever time it was, he's in that limo to go to the, your event. Yeah. I said, really? She goes, yeah, yeah. Call him up and do it. So I called up HBO and I said, I offered it to him and he took it. So he said, yeah, all right. I'll, you know, and, the, and, and I had the number of the limo driver. And so we would like call the limo driver, text him and be like, where, where are you? And he'd be like, I am taking him to karate. I'm taking him and his kid, his, his kid has a karate <laughs> class. He's at a 10 in the morning. He's at a karate class with his kid. And then he would like contact us or somebody and they would say, hey, um, you know, Polly Walnuts wants to go. Do you have a seat for him? Or like uh, uh, Stevie Van Zandt wants to go. Do you have a seat? Yeah. So, and then I would call David Savona at Cigar Aficionado. I'd be like, David, like this person wants to go. And David, like, bring him. You know, like, this is right. yeah. The next thing you know, I have a table that is bigger than Marvin Jenkins. <laughs> With the entire, and he had like Rush Limbaugh and Giuliani. It was the mayor at the time was sitting there. And I had a table with the entire cast, literally. All the, the all of the men, all yeah. the men cast from the Sopranos, with the exception of the guy who played Christopher, all all the rest of them were there. So, nice. and it became like a uh, a massive, unforgettable kind of highlight. And uh, we even they invited us to visit the set, so we went to the set. You know, we we had we developed a like a unique relationship with that cast. That was, was good. Cool. And, and Marvin put the cigars on the table. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. he did. Yeah. <laughs> He did. He did. He he, right. he made true on his uh, his promise. Right. I think that he he didn't think that I would be able to do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a great story. That's yeah, a great yeah, story. yeah. There's 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 photographic evidence of it out there. I mean, David Savona still has him. I asked him the other day. He still has him. Yeah. Oh wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Did did you know? Uh, you know as far as the cast goes, where were there cast members that were smoking the cigar on a regular basis? Hmm. Well, I know that like uh, James Gandolfini would smoke them mm -hmm. for sure. I don't know about the rest of them if they were smoking them, but you know, I, I know that Gandolfini was smoking them and a lot of other ones, especially at this night to remember, they were all smoking them. Yeah, right, right. 
No, and I, I remember I, the guy that played the Italian guy with the long ponytail. I mean, he was like brilliant. his sister. I mean, it, yeah. was, it was fine. I mean, I didn't, what am I going to say? You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I've actually, I've actually, uh, yeah, we've actually interviewed him. <laughs> I've actually interviewed yeah, yeah, yeah. Him and, and Vincent Pastor, but I don't think Vincent Pastor remembered the cigar when I spoke to him. He, yeah, well, he, he may, he may not have, you know, yeah. definitely. definitely. He, I, I think he remembers the shoots they did though on that from when we interviewed him. He definitely remembered like photo shoots around the brand. He knew about the cigar, but I don't think he smoked it regularly. Yeah. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so. Uh, that's, that's great there. Um, You mentioned Tim, you mentioned John Huber, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, John, great guy and you know, uh, known him for a while and, but at the time, I think when you guys had him at CAO, I mean, he, you guys were, I think, ahead of social media before before it became like cool for someone from a cigar company to interact with the regular consumers. You guys seem like you were the first guys to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, with John, John wrote a uh, letter to uh, to my father because we had a feature on us in uh, the local paper and he saw it. And he had moved to Nashville from L.A. And he said, you know, basically he wrote a very nice letter. And he said, my passion is in cigars. I would love to work for you guys, basically. And uh, I remember it was around Christmas. And my father read me the letter because, you know, I was visiting from California. And I said, I go, you know, Dad, I mean, honestly, the finding somebody who really, really wants to work for your company and has a passion in this is like half the battle, you know. I think you should bring him in and give him a shot at something. What do you need? He's like, well, we need a shipping manager. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I mean, you know, how hard is that for him to figure it out? Like bring him in as a shipping manager. And so we did. And then my father liked to say, he is the worst shipping manager. <laughs> he is a disaster. And I, we're like, what is it that you really want to do? <laughs> and I was like, well, I really like marketing. And uh, that's what I want to do. But okay. So then, uh, you know, John, John really kind of jumped into marketing with two feet. I mean, he, he, he liked, he really was into customer service and connecting with like, you know, retailers and particularly the consumers. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's kind of where he fell in and he found his, he found his groove doing that for sure, you know, and, uh, and he was a guy who liked to really kind of find a way to connect with the consumer uh, via the online community. And obviously he still does that. I mean, he's been, yeah. doing, he's been doing it for a long time now. He, you know what I mean? He knows how to do that very well. Yeah. I mean, I, before I kind of got into media, I just remember him on Twitter and he'd do these Twitter contests and they were like, you know, you almost like you were directly interacting with him on these contests. It was, yeah. it was, it was actually pretty cool yeah. um, to do that. And like I said, it was very it, back then. And Aaron, this was back then there really wasn't many other people doing that. So yeah. it was a big deal back then. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of people connected with John because, uh, you know, I think of that where I thought it was a very unique thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing how these things work out is that like his, um, that was his kind of, that w- I mean, he fell into that groove, you know, where he kind of, it was clicking, right. It was working. Uh, my MO was more like, I, I'm such a, I mean, I love people and I love the product. So, uh, and I, you know, because of the fact that I was like an actor trained in like improv and acting and, and kind of given the importance of listening and responding. And, uh, you know, when you do comedy, you want to get a reaction from people and stuff. So, you know, that's why I fell into more of this groove of, 
how can we kind of translate what makes this cigar unique via the packaging, number one? And number two, how can I connect with people and try to explain to them uh, everything that I've learned and I've seen by being in Central America, whether it's the fields, whether it's like where they're processing the tobaccos, whether where it's rolling the tobaccos and try to kind of convey what I thought was like special and beautiful about that directly to the consumer. So he and I both had different ways of connecting to people and the consumer. Mine was more like face to face and his was more through these kind of, um, through the world of, you know, through these, through these world of uh, digital media. Right. Right. No, that, I, com that combination was fruitful. I think it was definitely. Yeah, definitely for sure. But Tim, there was a point where I guess, you know, you guys built a great company and you guys, there was a point where I think you guys said you were going to, obviously the, the point you guys, were, you guys decided to sell. What kind of led to that decision? Well, we had a, uh, um, we had really great distribution um, around the world and we had a distributor in, um, in England, in London. And, uh, and, and, you know, he was doing a great job with our cigars. He did some great, amazing launch events for us in London and uh, his company, there were more, they were doing more like mass market cigars, shorter cigars. And uh, he was acquired by Henry Wintemans. And then I remember he came to me during one of the trade shows and we were talking and, you know, again, he was a very important customer of ours. And he said, um, you know, uh, Henry Wintemans is a part of a larger group called Scandinavian Tobacco Group. And at the time, Henry Wintemans was the, the premium cigar division or cigar division. We were, they were not in premium. They were making mainly um, machine-made cigars in Holland that were, you know, traditional for the Dutch market. And he said, but they really want to get into premium cigars and they want a, um, they want a brand to be like their kind of prestige brand. And I'm like, okay, like what kind of brand? And he was like, well, a brand like yours. And I was like, oh, okay, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> so then I remember like, you know, talking to my father about it and then we're like, hmm, interesting. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's talk to them about it. So we started talking to them about it. They, um, they made, uh, you know, they made a pitch to us and offered a, to acquire us. And we analyzed it. It was a very interesting exercise because we hadn't gone through that ever, anything like that in our lives. And we decided that at that time that that was probably, we felt like we could grow the brand a lot more ourselves. And we very politely declined. And, um, and then they came back like a year later with a more kind of serious um, offer. And at that time, you know, this is around 06, 07, there was a lot of, um, uh, how should we say it? There was a lot of kind of clouds we saw coming towards yep. the industry, yep. particularly around legislation. You know, this is around when S-chip was starting to creep mm -hmm. into play. Yep. And even more legislation and FDA was starting to, to be murmured. So we felt like that, you know, um, we didn't want to tie up all of our family's future and assets into, into an industry that we felt was potentially under threat. And so that's kind of what led to uh, us wanting to, uh, us ultimately selling. It was, you know, mixed emotions for sure about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, my father, from, from his standpoint, he had a lot of friends that he would talk to that he respected. And they would tell him stories about like, you know, like there was this one restaurant that, that we would like to go to for lunch. And 
this one lawyer that my dad really respected said, do you see that guy over there at the sitting over there in the corner of the restaurant by himself and looking miserable? He had an opportunity to sell his business and he didn't do it. And then his, his whole industry got shut down and now he's, you know, you know, he's kicking himself. So I think that really resonated with my dad. And I mean, to be honest with you, I, I, I didn't want to sell the business, um, but I understood. Right. Yeah. So because I was having fun in it and, um, and I felt like, you know, we were, we were doing a really nice job and we could continue to grow the brand, but, you know, ultimately like, you know, uh, I understood the, the, you know, the rationale too. Sure. Sure. And when you guys sold, I mean, it was, we hear a lot about like brand acquisition say, but you guys actually sold your company. So, I mean, it was lock, stock and barrel. You sold the company, which is, which is, you know, all the resources went along with that sale. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like we, um, you know, part of it is that like at, at first when we sold, you know, and, and they had the Henry Winterman's division, the gentleman that was running Henry Winterman's, um, was a guy who was very, very, very passionate about premium cigars. He was very serious about it. We liked him a lot. And we thought that um, with him kind of wor us working with him, that it would really actually work and enhance the brand. Um, but then uh, ST, what did they do? They sold off some part of their business and then a lot of the executives that they had, they had a, a cigarette division called uh, Prince. And a lot of those executives then shifted to premium cigars. So the gentleman we were dealing with in Holland kind of became more operations oriented with that group. And he wasn't our main point of contact really anymore. So, you know, things kind of changed along, along the way. Mm -hmm. Right. <clears throat> but you guys actually operated for a while as more of a stand standalone like you guys were still was it like a subsidiary for a while the way you guys were operating pretty much, yeah pretty much yeah pretty yeah much. um you know um yeah it was and then uh, but then we realized that when they kind of uh then partnered or merged with uh, swedish match and swedish match had a whole office park in richmond we figured that okay well they're they're going to like you know why have two different offices and two right different places of overhead you know we figured that they would combine them uh at one location which would be that location which is what happened yep and then so that was when you know that's when it, it got absorbed into what was general at that point yeah i think at that point it was called swedish match I right right yes had, correct it had changed the name from general to swedish match so but in essence yes yeah yeah i do i do remember the day it was announced you left. I was, and I can remember where I was. Uh, it was 2010 and it was November. And I was sitting in Kirk Kendall's shop uh, in uh, New Hampshire. I was actually on, out, out that way on all the business. So I, I do remember the day that came out um, where I was sitting, where, where I read that. Yeah. And I think that when that, what happened was, is that like when they um, were announced that they were going to move the headquarters to Richmond, um, that they kind of, you know, made an offer for other people to, our company to move there and you know i mean people like nashville they wanted to stay in nashville sure so they yep. you know i think i think most everybody did i think most everybody wanted to stay in nashville sure sure something else right so and and for me you know it was uh i don't know i mean uh, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur and so you know I, I wanted to just sort of uh 
you know, my father and I had other kind of interests we wanted yeah. to explore. Yep. No, I told, I totally get that as well. Um, so Tim, what I want to do is, can I do a quick sponsor read and then we'll kind of pick this up? Of course. Uh, we have, a, we have some smaller segments after that, but I can assure you, uh, this was the longest of the segments. So, okay. All right. Uh, are you okay on time so far? I'm just wondering. Hey, make- I know I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay, great. I want to, okay, great. So let me mention, um, a couple of our sponsors. Uh, first I want to mention, uh, tailored smoke located in the heart of downtown Charlotte's epicenter and outside the Charlotte motor speedway in Concord, North Carolina. Tailored Smoke is your one-stop shop for Tailored Smoking Experience. And by JRE Tobacco. The authentic Corojo leaf is one of the most robust and flavorful tobacco leaves out there. During the gold days of cigars of Cuba, it was a leaf of choice to make some of the world's greatest cigars. Because it was one of the most challenging ones to cultivate, it fell out of favor by the 1990s. In the Hamastron Valley in Honduras, Julio Aroa took on the challenge of growing Corojo from the original seeds. And in 2000, he successfully reintroduced authentic Corojo back to the market. With over 50 years' experience in the tobacco business from growing and curing tobacco, to cigar production, the Jerry Tobacco Farm has been able to continue to deliver products to market with authentic Corojo. Now with Jerry Tobacco, Huey and his son Husto bring their very own brand to market, each containing the authentic Corojo leaf. Aldino is available in a variety of uh, wrappers, including uh, the latest release, the Aldino Classic, featuring a Albano wrapper, and it represents the Golden Age of cigars from 1947 to 1961. Now available at your Oak Retail, be sure to ask for Jerry Tobacco, a legacy that is tasted in every drawer. And we want to mention Corona Cigar Company. At Corona Cigar Company, they take fact in their cigar fanatics just like you. That's why you'll find the best selection of the rarest and finest premium cigars available anywhere in the world. Plus, they have special limited edition cigars available exclusively to Corona Cigar from many famous international cigar makers, such as ALFD, Drew Estate, Arturo, Fuente, Gurkha, and Oliva. They have the best cigar selection, the best customer service, and money-saving discount prices. But don't just take their word for it. Forbes Magazine selected Corona Cigar Company as best of the web. Corona Cigar was voted a top five internet cigar retailer by Smoke Magazine. Cigar aficionado wrote, Corona Cigar Company, the largest, best stock cigar shops in America. You can place an order online at Corona's website or visit one of Corona's four central Florida cigar superstores and cigar bars and feast yourself why Corona Cigar Company is the ultimate cigar experience. So we're back with Tim Osgana here. Tim, thanks very much again for, uh, he's not there yet. We, we yeah, lost him. He just, st- he just stepped away from it. Okay, great. That's all fine. No problem at all. But, uh, I, it's funny because I cover the screen when I have to do the read. So yeah, no I'm back. I'm back. No, you're cool, Tim. Don't <laughs> worry about it. It's, appreciate. Well, again, appreciate your time here. Uh, thanks. Sure. Thanks again so much. This, right, is, this is fun. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is this is incredible. Um, so for you got you were out of the business for a long time. Um, and you mentioned a lot of some of the you guys got involved a lot with philanthropy. Uh, the time you were out and you started talking some of that. But maybe you can give a little more idea of some of the things you did while you were out of the cigar business. Yeah, so I mean, it was uh, one of those things that my, uh, you know, my father, he had a lot of uh, uh, health issues that propped up, which retrospectively, you know, he worked at DuPont and he was he was working on a lot of different things like, you know, analyzing microfibers, that kind of thing. Um, but he also worked on Teflon and, you know, Teflon you know, even though he was, uh, um, more into like, uh, uh, mechanical engineering, you know, when you're working on Teflon without a mask, you know, that can be lead to some health issues, which I think is what happened. Cause I, mm-hmm. I did some, I went through some genetic testing myself and they found that I didn't have the same, any indicators of any of the cancers that he battled. Cause he had like, he, he ended up getting a lymphoma mm-hmm. and, uh, 
and during that period, you know, he had to have a stem cell procedure done. He thought he was going to pass away from that. He was sort of like, you know, in his hospital room and hopeless. And a nurse came who was, um, she was Irish. And she sang him a Gaelic lullaby to sort of, you know, comfort him. And, uh, and he was so moved by her lullaby that, you know, he started to weep and then she started to weep. And then he somehow felt better. And then he started to connect with the colors of nature around him outside of his hospital window. And, um, and he kind of had this realization that like, you know, when things seem dark and hopeless that you might find a spark there and that spark will be motivated by art. And so then he started giving me like articles from like, let's say New York times or other publications about how there are all these interesting contemporary art movements happening in, in places like Miami. And, uh, and so then we went and we, we visited places in Miami or in Brooklyn. We saw these warehouses that were like being renovated and turned around into art centers. And then we said, well, well we have a warehouse that was, you know, where we had CAO. Mm -hmm. Why don't we uh, do the same thing? Why not Nashville? You know, Nashville is a rising city in the South and we already had the uh, infrastructure from, for music here. So like if we were in the middle of uh, another another state, um, you know, if we wanted a stage, we might have to truck it in from you know hundreds of miles out. But in Nashville, all that all of that those resources were were here. So we said okay, um, and then I ended up like ironically making friends with a gentleman who was with MoMA, who was um, an alumnus from my high school, and my father and I visited MoMA, and he encouraged us to. He said if you guys don't do it. I mean, whenever we do contemporary art, that's more edgy avant-garde stuff in New York that people are coming. They really, it's resonating with them. So we decided that we would convert our warehouse into a nonprofit contemporary art center. We wanted it to be visual art and performing arts, but we found some advisors through this gentleman at MoMA who advised us saying, look, you're a destination. You're not in the middle of town. You don't have foot traffic you know people have to like consciously go to where you are so it's more cost effective for you to do something that's more performing arts oriented as opposed to visual arts because the visual arts can be very expensive mm -hmm. so we started with that we hired an artistic director we we put together a team with like a development director and things that you need to do when you're structuring a nonprofit. but in essence nonprofit, it's a, it's another business except it's it's uh it's one of those that like maybe your revenues that you get from ticket sales only cover like 30% maximum of what your annual budget is. So you have to make up that gap through other things such as like, you know, federal grants, state grants, local grants, uh, patronage, donations, sponsors, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So um, we kind of, I, you know, my, my, I heard somewhere that they said the first five years of a business, you have to be 100% all in or it doesn't make it. And you also have to be passionate about it. So we were. So, you know, even though this was kind of like a, uh, that was something like we kind of threw ourselves into. And, and uh, you know, definitely the first five years, I was all in on that. And, uh, and it, was, it wasn't easy. It was hard. Sure. But, uh, but now we're in a really good position. Um, we found an artistic director who's also now our executive director who, you know, has 30 years of experience. He went from Seattle to Los Angeles and now he's in Nashville. The Disney family hired him 
from Seattle to start a similar organization to ours in downtown LA in the Walt Disney Hall. It's called Red Cat Theater, which is an acronym that stands for Roy and Edna Disney CalArts Theater. So Walt's brother Roy started this uh, similar organization to ours in downtown LA and CalArts was an institution that Walt Disney started to educate people that, that wanted to go into the arts. I mean, obviously, people that wanted to go into, you know, drawing and animation, uh, you have a lot of talent that come out of CalArts for that as well. So that, and I'm proud to tell you that like the last three years uh, from the city, we've been like in the top three uh, highest grant dollars awarded to our organization because of the fact that we're presenting, you know, young, younger artists and a lot of diverse, a lot of diversity. Um, So we, we feel very kind of, you know, proud and, and still bullish about, you know, Oz Arts Nashville. That's great. That's, you know, that's a, that's a great, you know, endeavor to do that. And uh, I, I, that is not easy. Right. And, um, you know, I've, like I said, I've followed some of the stuff just, you know, online and stuff and I've seen it. Um, so uh, good for you guys. I mean, and good for you and your family. I think it's a beautiful thing. Thank you. It's so, I mean, it was, it was a, uh, um, you know, it's a lot of work. I still am doing, uh, I'm still at Oz Arts and doing uh, things for Oz Arts. But what I've decided to do now is I want to operate uh, in both areas, whether it's Oz Arts or with the cigar business, into my areas of strength. And the other things, uh, I have good people around me that can operate in other areas that may not be kind of my number one strengths, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to kind of, I feel like that's a wise thing to do, you know, operate in your sweet spot. That's a, that's a, I would agree. I'd agree. That's the way to go, but something must have itched back at you to get back in the industry. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, um, you know, I, I started talking with, um, you know, with uh, Mike Condor and uh, you know, who's the president of Crown heads or CEO and uh, John about uh, uh, they kept saying, you know, it would be cool if you eventually came back. And then I remember I had a lunch with Mike um, maybe two, three years ago. And, uh, and I said, listen, um, I miss the cigar business. I love the cigar business. I loved, you know, creating excitement in the industry and I would love to come back, but the only way I could come back is if I found somebody that could run Oz, Oz Arts. I mean, my, my sweet spot in Oz Arts is, when it comes to these fundraising events and raising money. Um, I don't now I don't mind uh, asking people for money because I know that what we're what we're presenting is something that, you know, and you're not going to know any of the performers. You may know some, but but most of them you may not know. But when you go and see something uh, that we're presenting, uh, you leave saying, wow, that was unbelievable. That really kind of got me to look at something in a different way and somehow i feel like i've gotten smarter or i've gotten a bit more Mm -hmm. i don't know broad broad broad-minded you know or i've you know what i mean it's it's kind of opened my heart and mind and i said i left saying wow and i left feeling invigorated Mm -hmm. you know so you know that was kind of uh, um that's something that we still do. And so when I, I convey that to people, when it comes to raising money, the other thing that we did that I think is very important is that my mother 
was a, a you know PhD uh, in early childhood development, and she always uh, raised my sister and I with the importance of um, creativity and education, um, which definitely has helped me in the cigar business. Um, because our philosophy is, if you're if you're kind of brought up uh, with a creative base for education, um, and a lot of that is fulfilled through the arts. Whether you become an accountant, or whether you go into cigar business, or whether you go become an artist, um, being able to think creatively and outside the box is helpful in any of those fields, and that can be kind of accessed through the arts, because in the arts, you're doing maybe things tangible with your hands. You know, it kind of makes you think of things in a more creative way and not in just a very rote way. So now what we do is we try to bring these artists to children and young adults. And a lot of them are children and young adults that may not have the resources or the access for these kind of creative educations. For example, there, there are some schools that are the poorest schools in Nashville that they don't have a budget for arts. That's the first thing that gets cut. Mm-hmm. But yet we have someone in our office that is like community engagement. So her whole role is to bring these artists to, to these schools so that, so that these kids, you know, they, they, you hear talk about STEAM, science, technology, uh, engineering, yeah. arts, math. Um, a lot of times these kids have problems grasping say, let's say science or mathematics concepts, but with the, when you present arts in there, then they're able to understand it and visualize it a bit more. Yeah. So yeah, I feel definitely. that like yesterday for our fundraiser, I kind of articulated this and the whole crowd, we had 400 people there, over 400 people at this fundraiser yesterday. And they all were quiet mm-hmm. and people really like that idea and concept. I think people, it really resonates with people because it's, because it's, it's true and there's facts that support it. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree on that. That's a great, that's a great story. Um, you know, and I, I could just picture people I know kind of who could easily gravitate, like, you know, with the art, with art, how uh, they can grasp other. Th- I mean, I, I'm thinking of my own dad, actually, who maybe not have been the best student, but he always was into art, art stuff and he could relate to other things with that. Well, look, cigars are an art, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that not only cigars that are art, but things that are related to cigars that you enjoy with cigars, whether it's like, you know, I would say whiskeys are an art. Bourbon is an art. Wine is an art. Mm -hmm. Making a beer is is not easy. It's a combination of like some of those concepts that you find in steam science. Yeah. Math. Art artistry, you know, so um, I think that there are a lot of like parallels. Yeah, Uh, that's very true. That, That That's very true. You know, when you when you decided to come back, you had I guess you kind of came back. You you came back twofold. So you've come back with your own company and your own brands, and then you've also joined the team at Crown Heads. Uh, now Crown Heads. I'll, I'll start with Crown Heads. I remember when John launched Crown Heads like eleven years ago. I remember the thing he says: "This is not going to be CAO 2.0. I mean, he was very clear on that. And I think what you've seen with the brands and what he's done, him and Mike over the past decade, it has been it, it, definitely they've, they've. He's used the word "carve your own path." I think I think that's accurate. He's he's created a set of brands that have been fantastic. Um, but you you know you kind of came back two different ways. You kind of came back with with both Crown Heads and and Osgano. Why kind of come back 
in that fashion? Well, I mean, um, you know, part of it, the other thing I, I would tell you is that like, you know, during the pandemic, you know, it's a, a, a period where there was a lot of introspection for a lot of different people, yep. you know, um, we had to change how we did everything. Yep. So during that period, I, I had, you know, the good fortune I was referred to, like to uh, um, a guy who was a career coach. Now, I was like, I don't need to go see a career coach. And But this one friend of mine who I respected a lot said, well, this one gentleman who was a businessman I respected a lot in Nashville went to see him. And uh, it really kind of changed the way that he uh, he kind of he connected with what was his sweet spot. What is it that he was passionate about and enjoyed? So I did this exercise that he made me do around my life and my timeline, which is almost like you write the year and you almost like a bookmark size kind of, uh, you know, kind of margins you write underneath each year. And it's like the stock market. This year was high. This year was low. Why? I would draw these little illustrations of maybe a highlight for why. And uh, I found that when I looked back on it, my kind of high, my, my, some of my highest points um, were when I was in the cigar business and when I was developing brands that uh, uh, created excitement and that also I could kind of convey to the consumers why and the retailers why it was what it was. So then when we did that and looked back, he was like, well, look, your sweet spot is you should operate in your sweet spot. So if my sweet spot was, uh, um, you know, coming out with these brands and the background behind why, then then I should do that. Um, <clears throat> I didn't feel like with crowned heads, there was such a, uh, um, you know, an identity around that. Right. And when you come out with a, um, a new brand. Um, I feel like it's it's really important, especially right out of the gate, that the band be truthful as to who you are and the brand is authentic. So it was around a two year process where we started with who am I? Who are we? What's important to us? What's our story? And uh, I was fortunate that I was able to work with um, a friend who was a designer for um, he was a chief designer for Google. And that he also did uh, design work for Nike um, around some of their like, you know, shoe designs and, and some of their kind of uh, presentations uh, within stores. And so he was used to this process of starting from, you know, the, the center and the core of who you are. And, you know, we discovered that for us, like our family is that like, you know, the ingredients were really important, how they were made is really important. Um, the quality of the product is really important. And also like good humor, meaning, yeah, sure, we want to laugh and have a good time. But also, like, uh, who is the who are the company that you're keeping? You know, what? right? I mean, what are qualities that are positive qualities? And what are qualities that are negative qualities? And, uh, you know, we want to be around, you know, we think good humor means fellowship, camaraderie, shared values. Um, so all of that we kind of discovered. And then we kind of worked on, like, you know, what are important kind of uh, symbols uh, around around the center and the core of who you are. So that process organically developed into the new brand. Um, so that's kind of how we that's kind of how we got to where we were. you know it was, it was the desire to do something that was um, truthful and authentic that represented who we are. and in this case that told kind of the family story, which I think our family story is like a pretty, um, a pretty unique one actually yeah 
that that was the part that really um when I saw you launch the brand in June, um, being I lost my own father earlier in the year, you know, we, we as a family have been trying to come up with ways to basically keep his story going for, for people, generations, right? We, we, we as a family, we're, we're thinking of that. And I saw what, how you were launching these brands under the Osgoda family thing. And I'm like this, you know, what, what a great, what a great tribute. Cause I think both of those brands, they tie very much into your family story, um, which is, I think, a great thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, in this case, it was like, um, you know, the packaging. We we studied kind of like what are some uh, what are some ways that we can like tell the story visually, so that if I'm explaining it to you or if I'm explaining it to like um, mm-hmm. consumers or retailers, it's all there. You know, so I mean, like for in our case, you know, we really kind of said. You know, we have, you know, my father's side is Armenian. You know, this shows, this shows Mount right. Adat, you know, which Armenians are of a Christian uh, background. Right. Where, and then you have my mother's side, which this is, you know, Istanbul and the Bosphorus. And, you know, the Bosphorus kind of like, it's a strait that goes between like the uh, Europe and Asia. And it was a very valuable strait because, you know, it was kind of access to the Black Sea for trading. Mm-hmm. But it was also symbolic in that it, it, you know, it's kind of like one of the, you know, all these bridges that connect, you know, Europe and Asia. Um, and then my parents met in, in New York. So it shows the Statue of Liberty. In fact, we found a photo of my mother and father on a boat with the Statue of Liberty in the background. Now, oh, wow. it wasn't them entering the country. It was, it was them being kind of like, you know, on a probably on a day out in New York. Um, and, you know, my father was at Columbia University and my mother was a Fulbright scholar at Bank Street College of Education. She was supposed to go to Turkey and open up schools K through third uh, there, but they fell in love and they eloped and then they eventually made their way down to Tennessee and Nashville. So these are the foothills of oh, wow. Tennessee. In the middle, there's a boat and the boat kind of represents the journey that at some point, someone in our family's history made the journey to come to this country. And really, at the end, it's about kind of the American dream. And it's also about how like if and Turks and Armenians have a very kind of uh, difficult and complicated history. Mm -hmm. But if these two could, you know, find commonality through common interests and fall in love and be married for 55 years, I think we can all get along uh, with the ultimate peacekeeper, which is the cigar. Right. Right. So that's that's kind of like the. um, that's kind of the story that this this conveys. Yeah, no, I lo- I love it. I love the whole that whole story. And like I said, it it it's something that it resonates your family story, and it's a it's a it's a great one. Yeah, um, so no, that that's that's great. Um, and uh, the the other one, the Pisanastasia, is the other one that also kind of tied with your father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he um he did all this art, um, you know, because when he when he started to paint he connected it it made him feel good it lifted his spirits he liked he liked a lot of color when we did our due diligence and visited other contemporary art centers he found that there was this one artist his name was Saul Lewitt who almost would have a x and y on a graph and connect them the numbers with colors colored string colored you know pencils whatever that he would use to and so my father 
being a mathematician was and an engineer was like, well, I like uh, numbers and colors. I want to do it too. So, and then he, we found out that some people have this condition called synesthesia, meaning you say the number one and you think of a color or you think of a musical tone. Okay. So my father yeah. thought, all right, I'll, I'll come up with my own synesthesia. So I'm going to make like the number three will be yellow. The number one will be red. The number four will be brown. All this kind of number nine will be green. And, uh, and so, and then he liked to say, okay, well, I'll, I'll take it a step further. And I like, I like the number pi because it's infinite. Right. So that was like 3.1415. And then he, he started adding like measurements to them to make them, you know, three, one would be three inches long and therefore the three would be nine inches long and so on and so forth. So he did this like piece of art. Like this is uh, one oh, of the wow. books. You know, so the three you see is the yellow. Yep. You know what I mean? The one is red. And so this is an actual installation that he did uh, on a conference room wall we had. And, uh, and you could go on and on and on with it. Oh, wow. When I was down in Nicaragua working on the blend, you know, one of the folks I was working with says, I have this strange condition called synesthesia. And I said, that's crazy. My father painted all these paintings around synesthesia. And then he said, well, mine's more around taste. And I said, okay, let's blend a cigar that tastes like yellow. <laughs> and so right because that was the first thing he did and so you know i have actually some first prototypes of them where we put some mock bands on them that i'll show you that you know we had you know, these were some bands we looked at like okay this is act and all of them were based on actual this like this is an actual piece of art my dad did that was oh okay yeah that I so we this right. we didn't do this band right um then we had another band we thought about again one that was based on an actual piece of art that my father did which was this one we didn't want it. We didn't do that either. The one that we chose was kind of like what I just showed you, which was this, yep. which is based on based, to the, yep. yeah, based on an actual piece of an installation artwork that he did. You know, when you start with pie, so the three here is you can't see it really with a glare, but it's yellow. Right. So and then we wanted to make the box. These are limited edition boxes this is an actual signature of his with the C on it. Osgood right. cigars. And then, you know, this on the inside is an actual uh this he painted tobacco leaves in the pie color too oh wow so okay one that he painted that was yellow uh and then he would lacquer the tobacco leaves so we found a printer that could do 3d printing mm -hmm. so when you feel it it looks and feels like a tobacco leaf with his actual signature on it and then the right. cigars rest in the bottom so the idea is again you know what does yellow look like and taste like so the next mm -hmm. color he does is red so if we wanted to continue with this concept, it's a limited edition of 2,500 boxes. And the next one would be, you know, what does red look like and taste like? Yeah. And, right. so, on and so forth. And you go for infinity is the good news with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when you run out of digits, you can have the second vintage or something like that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Right. Yellow, right. yellow 2.0, yeah. I guess. Yep. Yeah. Tim, how involved are you with, with the blend development? How would yeah, you very, categorize very yourself involved. with that? Very, very involved. I love being involved. I mean, and the, look, the reason is this, is that, mm -hmm. you know, um, I've had so many years of experience with traveling around, visiting stores, mm -hmm. listening to people. Right. And it goes back to the listen and respond thing. I'll, I'll smoke what, what people like. Right. And uh, then I, I, you know, I gain knowledge from my palate based on, right. on that. And, and other things that I try to, that I think enhance that, whether it's food or whether it's right. So, 
I'm very involved. I want to know every single detail around every single strip of tobacco that's in there. And, and usually, in my experience, the best relationships when, when I'm down in Central America working on these blends uh, has to do with like really kind of working well with um, with whoever that we're working with on, de on the development of these blends. Right. Because um, the devil's in the details. And, um, and also you have to have the uh, knowledge to know that what you're smoking down there is likely going to change because of changes in environment and temperature and humidity. Um, so you need to also let the cigar properly kind of sit and rest. Mm -hmm. I mean, you might be excited about something down there, but then it might right. change a month later. So there's a lot of uh, variables and nuance to it. Um, but I've always been very involved. I know it's easy to say, oh, this cigar was made by blah, blah, blah manufacturer. A lot of times, though, in the past with CAO, people would be like, hmm, how come this manufacturer, their cigars taste different than yours? And the reason is, is because we're very, very involved and we sure. have a very strong opinion about what it is that we want and what we feel that our consumers want. And again, I think it's all based on the listening, listening and responding. We want to deliver mm -hmm. things that, that the consumer wants at the given time. And we want to make sure that it's like outstanding quality. So, I mean, like we started draw testing all of our cigars at a time when no one was doing that. And they it would take a wheel of like 50 cigars and weigh it. And if the gram weight was off, then they would draw test them. We said, no, we don't want to do that. We want to draw test every single cigar because if the guy twists it wrong, you got a plugged cigar. Yep. So, you know, these, we, we assume that like, again, coming from like, um, and, and, uh, you know, self-made uh, immigrant kind of mentality that my dad had is that, uh, you know, these are your hard earned dollars. So we want to make it worth it. You know, so, so we really were hyper-focused on quality and 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 trying to make uh every penny you pay for the cigar worth it no and uh obviously there was a lot of people who are very excited these brands have started to, to hit the shelves right now and uh that that's great news um and you've gotten out and done some events already so you you've kind of gotten back into that as well yeah no no i love doing that i mean i love meeting people and talking to people and again kind of you know listening and responding i mean right. and, and trying to answer questions. So a lot of good questions out there. I mean, a lot of consumers are yep. very knowledgeable about things and listen, if I don't know the answer, <laughs> I'm a very, you know, I, I say, I don't know the answer, but I'll find out for you <laughs> because uh, yeah, there's, there's some of those that, that come across too. So it's, it's, it's actually pretty, it's pretty exciting to see people that are so interested in cigars and learning about cigars. And, and I think a lot of that was propagated, um, you know, because of the pandemic and because people could sit and yep. say, you know, all right, I'm, I'm drinking this bourbon now, this cigar pairs with it. Why did that pair so well with it? Or what, you know, mm -hmm. interesting, you know, um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of nuance and detail. A lot of it is, has a lot of parallels with wine and in the wine industry, they've done a good job of explaining like, why does, why does the microclimate of this one field here differ from one that's across the street? Um, and I think that, that in the cigar, in cigar business, it's similar. We just yeah. need to tell that story. Right. No, agree. Agree. So, so Tim, you know, there has been a lot uh, in the news lately. Uh, obviously, Crown Heads, Ace Prime, Pachardo. Um, there's a lot going on with that. 
your your cigars are coming out of the Pachardo factory. Um, but you know, I think there's people who have the question, you know, what does this mean for Osgoner family cigars right now in particular and, and the lines that you have? Well, I mean, you know, all of this was kind of, um, you know, whenever I go down to a factory and work with people, you want to find out, especially in a new relationship, you want to find out who's who and what's what and who's, who's doing what and what's the lay of the land uh, there, you know. Um, you know, we were dealing with um, Tobacalera Pichardo. Um, the name of the factory was not Ace Prime. You know, Ace Prime was the company that owned brands. Um, so whenever I was down there, I was assuming it's called Tobacalera Pichardo for a reason. So, you know, I was making relationships and dealing with the people that I was put in contact with over there. And, uh, and they were making very good cigars for us. Um, we kind of, for the last six months, have been preparing to you know, preparing for this moment because we saw that there were some, I don't know, there were perhaps some kind of uh, issues or, uh, down there that, that really kind of we had nothing to do with. So, you know, whenever something like that happens, you know, you have to kind of be prepared with any sort of contingencies. So, so we, have, we have things that have been in the works um, and you'll be hearing about those soon. Um, uh, I won't, I, you know, I can't really kind of make a comment on that now. Sure. Or the fact that, Understood. Again, the, the whole, the whole main goal is, you know, I'm back in this business because I love cigars. I love the industry. I love how it makes people feel. And again, like I told you earlier, you know, the goal is it's a very, um, as you've seen, a very personal story for me. Um, it's around my family. And, you know, my father taught me, you know, before he died, he said the two most you know, the two most important things are your education and your reputation. So, you know, this, this has my family's name on it. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the goal is for it to be the best cigar it can possibly be. Right. So it, it will continue down that path. And, and, and you'll know about it more when, when, you know, in the very, very near future. But okay. I, can assure, I can assure you one thing for all the brands. Uh, they're all fine all in really good shape collectively we have a lot of experience in the cigar business particularly like it's not just me and mike and john who collectively we might have you know 30 to 50 years of cigar industry experience between the three of us it's not that's not insignificant i mean we also have like there's uh, adam shepherd with our company has also been with us from the very beginning at CAO and he's our, um, he's our CFO and technically a COO. Um, you know, Miguel Chaudel is our uh, national sales manager. I remember first seeing Miguel at a Chicago big smoke and you could tell that he was a talented individual then. So he's had a lot of experience too. So, um, we are not, uh, um, you know, we're industry veterans here. Yeah. Um, and we do not, um, you know, we, we are, we are in the business because we are serious about the business. And, and, you know, again, we're very, very focused on one thing, you know, delivering outstanding, unique quality cigars to the market. Yeah. We know, we know Miguel a long time. Uh, yeah. we do a, we do a baseball show. 
two baseball shows a year with yeah, him. He probably told you yeah. this four-hour shows. That's why we... <laughs> 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 like, you guys, yeah, because we, we right. talk... That's why I have a full glass of bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, one question along the lines of that is, so you mentioned it was like a six-month period that you, you knew that there were going to be some changes come, but you still went ahead and brought the brand to market, right? So I guess what I'm saying is, you felt confident enough to still bring these brands to market uh, with Pichardo and, and however that's going to work out, it's going to work out as I guess what I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, um, again, the, uh, you know, the passion that Eradio Pichardo had when I visited down there was, you know, quite um, impressive to me. Um, he showed the rapper that I have now, actually, um, he showed me this and he showed it was a beautiful, uh, brown rapper, and he said, um, this is coming from my personal field in Ecuador, and you can smoke it right now raw, and he rolled it for me, and we lit it, and, um, and it was, it was fantastic as it was, you know, um, and so I can only say, I can imagine when you ferment this, how good uh, it can be, so, so yes, I mean, you know, the thing of it was, is that the cigars we smoked were really good, and, um, and the materials are also really good. And I've in that moment saw the um, pride and passion uh, and the mm, kind of the, for him it was emotional too. He said, this is from my fields in Ecuador. It's very unique, try it. So, I mean, you know, we, at that point in time, we were down the path of, of, you know what I mean? Things were kind of cranking. We had, we had a blend that we were felt wonderful about, right. we excited about, we thought the market would be excited about. We had the trade show around the corner. I mean, sometimes, uh, sometimes in life, you know, it's, it's timing, you know? Yeah. And so we felt like the timing, it was on a momentum that we were like, okay, let's, let's go with it because we think that, that it's a really outstanding product and we think that people will like it. And I think people uh, were very excited and, and uh, you know, I'm hearing a lot of people, you know, excited about it and I'm personally excited about these as well. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I think it's, I think there's a pop, I mean, it, it's first of all, it's gonna say, I think this is great that you are back in, in this industry. It, it, it um, and certainly, um, you know, with your own brand and, and work with the folks at crown heads. I think this is, uh, I mean, it was, it was, a, I thought it was one of the biggest stories, Tim, to see you back at the trade show, yeah. actually for me to see you oh, at the trade show the first time. So it, it was a great nice. thing to say. Very well, very nice of you to say. And I mean, again, um, you know, I'm very, very genuine in just saying that like, you know, the story of, of how I got back in and why, and um, you know, certainly I don't want to have anything with my family name on it that, that I don't feel is outstanding and that I'm not proud about. Cause I, you know, if I'm going to go out and I'm going to talk to somebody face to face, you know, I, I can't sell it. Yeah. And I feel yeah. I, I've always, one of the rules when you went through improv comedy is that you have to have a hundred percent commitment, you know? So yeah. I, I, I bring that to, I bring that to everything I do, but if I, if I'm not a hundred percent convinced that it's great, then it's not going to hit the market. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. I, don't, I don't want to do that. That's not why I'm back in the business. It's my father said to me always is that like, you know, this should be work 
should be a pleasure. And that's how I approach it. I mean, like this, this work is a pleasure to me. Cigars are a pleasure to me. How it makes people feel. Because you're slowing down your breathing when you're inhaling it. And, you know, I think that when you inhale it, you also, you know, you're somehow like relaxing. It stimulates you so that you're relaxed, but at the same time, you're open to listening to people more. So I feel like cigars are really a powerful and underrated um, commodity. No, I, I you know agree, and it just kind of how you told the whole story about Bosporus bringing people together. I just I kind of like that whole I like that whole story with that too. Listen, I feel like wholeheartedly that um, if you had people that have problems and you put them in a room and you have them smoke cigars, you say you're not leaving this room until you figure this out. People will figure it out yeah. and they'll get along, even if they may not agree. Yep, it's a very powerful. I mean, it's like a peace pipe, except it's a peace cigar. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> no, that's good. Aaron, do you have any more like brand questions before we hit the, the kind of the three fun things with Tim we could do? I have one question because I think I beat myself up if I didn't ask this question. Um, and I'm always kind of fascinated by people's reactions to things when, when um, somebody sells something that they've built, right? And then kind of what their thought thoughts are after the fact like do like and you could just answer however you like you don't have to go into anything too deep but whatever whatever you want to add to it but you know there's in the industry there have been some acquisitions over the past few years and people wonder like you know when somebody sells something you know what their thoughts are after the fact of how what kind of image or what kind of path the brand takes after they've sold it did that does that ever does that kind of ever like creep into your mind of like following that or does it you know do you like it do you not like it like or or when you sell do you kind of just like let go of it and understand it as just it was a business decision i've moved on you know i'm going on to the next thing kind of a scenario yeah well i mean that's a great question i mean there are there are a lot of things that a lot of emotions that that come across your mind i mean first of all when you when you do that you have to you have to come to terms with yourself that it's you know no longer yours yeah so you have to like really emotionally come to grips with that and, and say that, okay, I, I'm ready. I have to, you know, you're kind of, you have to detach a bit emotionally from it. Mm -hmm. um, Cause it's almost like, it was like one of your kids, you know? Yeah. So there's that. And then um, part of that is that like, you know, when we first sold it, I was still a part of the business after we sold it. So mm -hmm. It's just a matter of, in that case, it was just sort of adjusting to the new kind of dynamic there. Um, but then when I left, left all together, I was like, you know, it's almost like um, you have a new chapter for your life, a new right. chapter in your book, or you climbed that hill and now there's another hill you, you want to climb. Right. So I kind of, it was kind of a combination of, of all three of those okay. for me. So I, I didn't really... To be honest with you, I didn't follow what CAO did after I left the business. Right. Um, I mean, I might, I might, if if somebody told me about something or forwarded me an email or or a press release or something, I would look at it. But you know, I was pretty detached at that point from it. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's, that's what I would figure it would be the kind of the process. But you know, there's always those people that are looking from the outside and like can you believe what they've done and all this other thing, yeah. these other things? And then you have to like, like 
they, you know, they've let go of it. They have to understand, you know, they've, they understand that they, they're not in control of it. Like, so yeah. it's not, it's not them doing it. It's whoever's purchased and moved on with it. That's kind of taking on these yeah. next steps. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I, I you know, I, when I was with CAO, I could tell you every year what we did and what were the nuances and stuff like that. Yeah. Once it's not yours anymore and you're away from it and you've moved on to something else, then it's sort of like eventually over time, it's sort of like you kind of, you know, gradually get more and more a bit detached from it. Yeah. It, it, but Aaron, you, but still, by the way, you still like, I mean, honestly, you still want it to do well. Sure. It, it, well. You know what yeah. I mean? Like my I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. got, you know, it's, it's got your father's initials on it and it's you know something that you guys built. So yeah, no, I mean, listen, the, 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 thought, the hope was from the very beginning, you know, that we want them to be successful with it. No question. Yeah. And they have been, I mean, look, that that's become a monster brand for them. Yeah. So, I mean, something went right. You guys did something right. Obviously when, when you turned it over there is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we, and certainly we want that to be the case for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, so I think I think that you know, and and, and by the way, I I can tell from personal experience, it I I was in a situation where I didn't let go for a while. Aaron knows this, and, and it drove me nuts. It was a, <laughs> if I had taken that advice a long time ago, I would have been much better of mind. <laughs> so, yeah. so I I, I uh, good for you, Tim, on that. <laughs> That's right. a good question, though, for sure. Yeah. All right. All right. This is our uh, Alec Bradley Live True uh, segment, uh, sponsored by Alec Bradley. Alec Bradley, Alec Bradley, Alec Bradley, Alec Bradley. Uh, find out more about their cigars at alecbradley.com. <laughs> so, Tim, all night you've been, if you folks haven't noticed, like, I love when you were kind of going into your father's voice. Okay. You are known legendary in the cigar industry for your impressions. I mean, you have, you have absolutely one of the great reputations of that. Thank you. Yeah. I got to hear the Rocky Patel impression. I mean, I gotta hear it again. I gotta hear it live here because I, I, it's, I, I think it, I've heard. I know I've heard it before, and it's been a while. No, I'm sitting here with my good friends, Will and Aaron. We're smoking my left foot blend. I have on my other hand my right foot blend. I have so many blends. I have a today September twenty eighth blend, September twenty ninth blend. blend, 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 blend. I am loving all of the my blends. I have a white blend, a black blend, red blend. I have a Monday blend, Tuesday blend, Wednesday blend, 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 blend. <laughs> it's going to be so hot, so hot of a blend. We have never seen a blend that's so hot of a blend. It's so hot. It's going to burn your tongue off. And your tongue, you're <laughs> where's my tongue? I can't find it because of my hot blend. <laughs> he's a good friend. He's a good friend of mine. I'm just saying, is he, yeah, is he heard it? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He loves it. <laughs> so, yeah, again, Rocky and I, uh, uh, he's one of my oldest friends in the business because we kind of like both came up at the same time in, yeah. in LA when he yeah. had Indian tobacco. So, so, so he and I have had some really fun times together. I mean, yeah. I, I consider Rocky one of my, uh, He's almost like a brother, to be honest that, with you. Oh, that that's great. That's great. I mean, but that seems like something you like to do is go into the impressions, right? That's just, it's just, it's just something. It's, it seems like it comes very natural to you because I kept, throughout the interview, you kept going into your dad's voice like several yeah. times. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I always grew up like doing impressions of everybody. That was kind of like one thing that I'm, that I'm, you know, 
was good at doing. Even when I did stand up, my stand up routine was around like the whole the whole architect arc. When you do a stand up, it's like, you know, what's the what's the setup, and then what's the act out, and in my case, meaning an impression, and then what's the punchline. So it was really all about like kind of constructing, you know, your bit around that. Yeah. And actually, I mean, like the, the whole stand up thing was fun. I mean, most of the time I would do it. I would talk about being born and raised Turkish Armenian in Nashville, Tennessee, and like, you know, doing, doing my dad or my mom or whoever. And uh, it was fun. Most of the time, you know, you're not, you're not going to be, I don't think in anything, you're, you're not going to bat a thousand. You know what right, I mean? Yeah. I was batting 800, you know, it's good. Right. So but it's fun, but it's, a, it's, it's hard. That's a hard life being a stand up. Oh, yeah. I met with uh, Jeff Foxworthy's agent. And he was saying, uh, you know, there's two paths. You go on the road for 10 years, you know, you go and you perform all these like smaller comedy clubs all over the country and you come back to LA and then maybe you get on a show or whatever, or maybe not, or you just hang around in LA and you, you, you know, try to do as many like showcases as you can. Right. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I, I don't know if I want that life, you know, I, yeah, I definitely I a that grind. Was, yeah. Complete grind. And, you know, I just found that like the, for the cigars for me, when I got in it, like, you know, it, it started to click and sometimes in life, you just gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta go with the flow. And I loved it. And, and, yeah. I, and I felt like I could organically fall into these sort of situations where, I mean, there's so many colorful characters in the cigar business and so many accents. Oh that, yeah. But I was like, and so many bizarro kind of funny moments that you're like, can you yeah. believe this guy just said that? Or like, <laughs> you know, I mean, so, and part of comedy is also exaggeration. You know what I mean? So like when yeah. I do my Rocky, I mean, you know, obviously he's not doing my left foot blend, my right foot. You know, <laughs> right. <a> of- <laughs> but you want to exaggerate that. You know? Right, right, exactly. There, so Tim, you wrote, this is the first time I've ever, seen you on an interview or talked to you or anything like that. So uh, I apologize for not having more insight into you, but there's somebody else in the cigar industry that that the two of you just seem very similar, but you're, but since I don't know you, I'm going to say that you seem very different also, because I don't know the full, you know, breadth of what your humor is, what you find funny, things like that. But you and Matt Booth seem like if you, the, the tone of your voice and I think your cadence seem very similar. Like if you, if you blindfolded somebody and you were talking or you had Matt Booth talking and, you know, a normal conversation for Matt Booth, <laughs> you might, might be get confused for yeah. kind of having that same cadence and that same kind of voice tone, I think. So I don't maybe if that's your type of humor, you might be able to nail down a really good Matt Booth impression. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I don't really know Matt. I mean, I know who he is, but I, I don't, uh, um, I don't know him very well. Yeah. So I haven't had a chance to spend that much time around him because I think that he came up with his brand right when we were kind of, you know, right when I was sort of transitioning out. Right. But uh, all right. So I'll, I'll, I'll maybe listen to him a bit more keenly. I, we so just we had Matt Booth on. Yeah. Last week or the week before? Week before. Yeah, the week before. Okay. Okay. If you want to check uh, out two weeks ago I'll, from our show, you yeah, get a, I'll send you the a link. Sense of it, okay, but, I'll look. I'll look at it then. Yeah, but you guys, uncannily, you sound you like if you closed your eyes, I could almost see it like this, like very similar kind of a voice pattern. So you're saying so, he's copying me? <laughs> yes, he's definitely copying you because I, yeah, I think so. But um, so maybe I'll get him to do an impression of you. 
Okay. And we'll see how that works out. That's fair. We'll see who can do better. Right. Yeah, have, have a competition between the two. Okay. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. You, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, all right, Tim. Uh, I got a um, couple more things. Um, I got to do one more quick sponsor round. You, can you hang for a couple more minutes? Yeah, of course. All right, great. Because I don't want to. I don't want to leave these guys out. So, um, want to mention uh, J.C. Newman Cigar Company. Let's say it again. Founded 1895 by Julius Caesar Newman. J.C. Newman Cigar Company is the oldest family-owned premium cigar maker in America. For four generations and 127 years, J.C. Newman is handcrafting many of the world's finest cigars. J.C. Newman is headquartered in an iconic 112-year-old cigar factory in the Ybor City National Historic Landmark District of Tampa, Florida. At the factory known as Elver Hold, J.C. Newman models premium cigars by hand and hand-operated antique machines. J.C. Newman Pensa Factory is the second largest in Nicaragua, and it's where Pearl Domar, El Baton, Corm, and Yagua cigars are hand-rolled. J.C. Newman's Diamond Crown, Maximus, Julius Caesar, and Black Diamond cigars are handmade by tobacco or A. Fuente in the Dominican Republic. With its longtime partners, the Arturo Fuente family, the Newman's founded the Cigar Family Charitable Foundation, which supports low-income families in the Dominican Republic with education, healthcare, vocational training, and clean water. Visit jcnewman.com to learn more. And I want to mention Casa Cuevas Cigars. The Cuevas family has five generations of experience in cigar making. For many years, they have manufactured cigars for many industry leaders at a Las Lavas factory in the Dominican Republic. Now the Cuevas family has brought their very own brand to market with Casa Cuevas Cigars. You could try the Casa Cuevas line in the Connecticut, Abano, Maduro, La Mandaria line, as well as the Patrimonial line, and of course, the Cuevas Reserva line. If they don't carry it, be sure to ask your local retail for Casa Cuevas Cigars. Casa Cuevas Cigars from our casa to yours. Okay, so uh, Tim, I got two more things. Uh, first is our cattle baron steak question of the night. This is related to steak. Uh, you're a Nashville guy. I want to know the best steakhouse to go to in Nashville. Oh, well, I mean, well, there, there are quite a lot of them. Right now, the newest steakhouse in Nashville is one that's called Hall's Steakhouse. Okay. That started in uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and they just opened up in Nashville. It's a family-based um, steakhouse. And I had a dry-aged bone-in, was it a ribeye or a New York strip? It was fantastic, I have to say. So um, right now, I'd probably say Hall's, Ch uh, Hall's Chop House is the place to go in Nashville. I just found out there's one not far from me mm. in Greenville, South Carolina. Really? Yep. So that's good to know. I'll have to find that out. Yeah. The other one I like is uh, they opened an Eddie V's recently. Mm -hmm. That's really great too. And the GM of Eddie V's is a, a big cigar aficionado. Nice. So yeah. So that's, that's another one that's new that opened up over here too, that I like. Um, there's another one called Cane Prime that a lot of people like in town. That's that's very good. Well mm -hmm. known for its uh its wagyu cuts. Okay. Excellent. So I have some good options when I go when I go back to Nashville. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So good good job, Tim, on that one. And uh, what we close out this uh, tonight with our um, this is what we call an industry deliberation segment. But I'm I'm like bringing you into this one because I want to. Uh, this is a little more of a less fun but it won't be a bad question won't embarrass you um and it's sponsored by dunbarton tobacco and trust uh there is no deliberation uh when it comes to dunbarton's track record since launching in 2015 this has included seven consecutive top three appearances on the half wheel consensus including the number one cigar of the year in 2020 with the micarita tricky tracker visit dtt cigars to find the purveyor that carries the brands of dunbarton tobacco and trust
So Tim, this is kind of our industry talk segment. And I have one question and I really wanted to kind of ask you this because I think it's a unique perspective. Okay. Um, what's so different about the cigar industry, you getting back into it now in 2022 versus when you left in, in 2010? What are some of the things that have changed a lot that have maybe surprised you positively or negatively? Well, first off, I will tell you, when I went to Esteli, Nicaragua, that city has really changed. And I've noticed that, too, because I've been there over the years. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, it is it is busy, busy, busy. I was shocked at the development of Esteli, Nicaragua. Um, you know, the, the other thing I'll say is, um, so that's one thing that surprised me. The other thing that surprised me was, um, you know, when I asked uh, our team, like, what, what are some sizes that we should think about coming up with for um, Oscar family cigars that, you know, they, they weren't like, they didn't suggest any sort of figurato, which, you know, so I don't know what figurato kind of sales, like, you know, torpedoes, stuff like that, you know, are, but that was usually a staple yeah. and it's not, yeah. in, it's not in our first four kind of um, Vitolas here. Um, I don't know why, I don't know if that's a trend, I don't know what you guys see or think about that. I'm curious, but that's another thing that surprised me a bit was, um, was that. Yeah, I think the, the Toro Robusto, maybe the Gordo has kind of been turned out what has been with the, you know, the things that turn the most mm -hmm. for shops. But yeah, I mean, definitely the artisanal type Vitolas, I think are preferred from, you know, some of us that smoke, uh, quite a bit, you know, also, you know, smaller ring gauge stuff like Lonsdale's, Lanceros, things of that nature. Yeah. Know, and we, I mean, the, like... other thing, the other thing I noticed is that we came out with a size that was like a four by 50. And um, actually people really liked that. And I think the part of that logic was, you know, and I, and when I was, you know, selling it, people were like totally resonating with it is that like, look, this is, this is a cigar that will take you 20 to 30 minutes to smoke. Yep. But it's for people that say, you know what? I want quality for those 20 to 30 minutes. They were like, yeah, 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 yeah. I want that. That's what I want. Yeah. So I think that like not people saying with that 30 minutes or 20 minutes, I am definitely in on paying a bit more for a higher quality product. Yeah. So before, not so much, right? right. Now... It's definitely a dynamic. It's a factor. Yeah. So I would say that those things have kind of, um, those, those were things that kind of surprised me. The other thing, by the way, is that I think that there's like a really um, renewed interest in becoming more knowledgeable about cigars from the next generation. And so that's another thing that is really kind of um, really, really positive. People really want to become knowledge up on cigars, not dissimilarly from bourbons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know. I like a good Figurato, by the way, and I, especially because you can get some of the tapering effects. And I also like a bigger ring gauge personally. And I think Figurato is sometimes a great way to enjoy a bigger ring gauge without the discomfort of one. So, you know, I, it kind of disappoints me when I see like a skew discontinued with with a with a Figurato or Bellicoso because because I, I I do like those cigars, like those are just ones I personally enjoy. It's really a nuanced thing. I mean, it's it comes down to if you have a six by fifty, 
And you have a Toro that's a six and a quarter or six and a half by 54, let's say. Right. And you cut enough down on the torpedo. I mean, I would think the logic may be, you know, the torpedoes typically are more uh, expensive to make because they're more mm -hmm. difficult to finish and they take more time and more skill from the roller to finish is that if somebody is not appreciative about like basically choosing your own ring gauge with those, um, then they may not find it worth it to pay $2 more or $1.50 more for it or $1.25 more for it or whatever it might cost more for it. Yeah, no, it's, you're right. You're right. I mean, I could tell you that, you know, like with crown heads, one thing I look forward to the last few years has been, the Lake Carem and the Bellicosos Finos, which is released once a year. And to me, that's kind of special. Um, and I just, like I said, that's a, that's a cigar I look forward to every year. It's like a treat for me. So, um, you know, and that's just a great representation of that blend. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so no, it's, uh, you know, like I said, I think, uh, you know, it's 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 always interesting to see when someone comes back you know after after this amount of time and you might have the biggest the longest t tenure out at least in modern cigar industry history so um you know it's always good to see the uh, one question i'll ask you are you surprised how the limited edition market where it is today because it's just like i think there's just too many limited editions today in my opinion yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, an answer to that is is that I'm I'm getting more kind of uh, knowledge up on that relative to what's out there on the market. Um, you may be right. You're probably right. Um, if it's a, I, my feeling again is that like if it's a limited edition, you know, it really I think, like the Pi Synesthesia thing, it we we didn't I didn't go down to Nicaragua with the objective of coming up with a limited edition. Right. So happened that there was a guy down there that said, I have synesthesia. And I was like, wow, my dad painted like all these paintings around synesthesia. It, it just organically right. unfolded. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, sometimes when these things happen, you just have to be open-minded and be willing to go with the flow. Sure. 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 No, so definitely. I'm, definitely. Not a, I'm not a, I'm not a big sort of fan of doing a limited edition for the sake of a limited edition. I feel like uh, a limited edition, there has to be a strong with everything. I start with why the why, the why has to be like a really strong, why are you doing this? Yeah. If it's not something that is, it's not something that's true to your core, then you don't do it. Yeah. I mean, you have, I think crown heads has done a, a, really as far as limited they they have their groove in terms of there's certain lines that come out once a year and then you guys do fun extensions off those lines which i you know like i mentioned the bellicose Espino, but you have the the annual like las calaveras and mule kick and you know so I, I think you have i think you guys have a pretty good groove with that um and you've done some creative things with that so I, I, you know, I like, I like what crown, I like how crown heads has gone with that direction, at least with the limits. And I've been, I've been critical of limiteds, but I think in, in that case, I, I like what they've done. So. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's good to hear. I think that, you know, obviously John is uh, um, very thoughtful about how he does them and why yeah. he does them. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just even give you one more, as we close out one more big appraise, you know, the TAA cigars, I've been very critical of lately, uh, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, dwell on the negative what i'll say is i love the effort that john's put into the 
the TAA cigar every year. And he's, yeah. and he's re- really puts a lot of, and it's same with the PCA exclusives. There was a lot of thought and effort put into these and, and I can appreciate, I can appreciate it. You know, so the other, I, thing that, the other thing when you're saying I'm thinking about is that like, I feel like one thing I took for granted when I was away from uh, CAO or away from the business is that, you know, just in general is the, um, you can't underrate the team. Um, you know, like with our, with our uh, arts company, you know, to formulate and, and, you know, bring together a team of people that are all sort of like mm-hmm. minded and passionate about what they're doing was not easy. Um, and it's the same thing I, I realized in the cigar business, the team that we have at Crown Heads uh, is a really special group, you know, so I think that that is a lot of times over, you know, you can't overlook that. I mean, that's, that's a really important dynamic. Yeah. I mean, in this case, the, 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 the team at Crown Heads, they're like my family, you know, mm-hmm. they're like a band of brothers. And I think that's very, very, uh, it's very important. I, mean, I, I saw that with you um, at the show this year, you and John definitely. So it was, you could see it. It was, it was beautiful to see. Well, I can't be over, I can't overstate that importance of that is that it's a, yeah, it's a hard thing to like, it's an easy thing to overlook, but uh, it's something that definitely I missed and appreciated. That's good. I think they have. I think we have. A, we have a really kind of good core team at Crowned Heads that really is 100% all in and passionate about what it is that they're doing, and serious about it. But also at the same time, it's the work is a pleasure. And again, the work needs to be fun. It needs to be a pleasure. It needs to be positive. There can be no negativity. And if there is negativity, then you just have to like you know you have to move on from it. His life's too short. I agree on that. All right, Tim. Uh, I think we're at the end here. So um, first of all, I want to really thank you for your time, your generosity. Uh, just, uh, but, but it's really appreciated. We notice your personal time. It's not taken for granted, Tim. So, so thank you so much. Yes, uh, you. Can't wait to have more stories and, and, and talk to you again here. Yeah, Will and Aaron, thank you very much for having, having me on. You guys are both very well-respected by the industry um, and, and really, really good people that I talk to that have nothing but positive things to say about you all. And uh, so congratulations with that and congratulations for establishing a good reputation for yourselves and what it is that you're doing. I think what you're doing is really important. And um, so c- keep on doing what you're doing because uh, it's needed in our industry. And, uh, and, and I would be honored to be on again with, with both of you gentlemen. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Anytime. Uh, quick programming note for next week. Uh, we will have uh, primetime episode 244. John Carney of Florida Minicana will be our special guest. Um, but for now, uh, that's going to wrap up primetime episode 243 into the annals of history for Thursday, September 29th. Now Friday, September 30th on the East Coast. We'll see everybody next time. Take care, everybody. See you guys. Thank you.